0: We think we've heard of that before. Stranger stories every day. Wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring. So, listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.
1: Ever.
2: Hello.
0: Hi. How's it going? It's going okay. It's been a long couple of uh years of my life. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think we all feel that right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, uh today was the first morning that I was uh I didn't have to be up super early. There's a couple of things that I'm working on that necessitated me being up uh somewhat at an ungodly hour. Mm. Uh for which I'm grateful, but
1: hence the sleep deprivation episode last Hence time. S-
0: yes, yes, precisely, hence the sleep deprivation episode last time. And today was the first morning where I didn't have anything to do. So I was able to just sleep to a somewhat luxurious wake up time because I had been, so last week I had a couple of days and then I had uh, yesterday as well, days where I was getting up around 5 a.m. or earlier. Mm -hmm. And I have, I get like anxiety about When I like if I'm going on a trip or I've got something to do and I have to be up at an uh, at an early hour, Mm. I I get anxiety about it, and so I can't fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And then not only can I not fall asleep, I'll wake up at like three o'clock in the morning, yeah, and then not be able to go back to sleep. You know, for like another hour or so until I need to get up.
2: Yeah,
1: and
0: and you know because I'm so awesome uh, that persists for days Mm -hmm. afterwards.
1: (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. And I, I've been going through like I just go through. I don't have any reason that I have to get up early right now. Yeah, but I just go through periodic bouts of insomnia. So that's mm-hmm. been my life. Like I've been, I was up till like four in the morning watching movies last night for no reason because. Uh, what else are you going to (laughs) do?
0: Yep. Yeah. Just sit there and like stare at the wall. What movies did you watch? Anything good? I
1: I almost am like embarrassed to say it because of recent events, but uh, I've been watching the Harry Potter movies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Mainly just because it was like, I don't know. I haven't seen these in a long time.
0: I don't think you need to be, I don't think you necessarily need to be embarrassed of that because of recent events. I think you just need to be embarrassed of it because hot take guys. (laughs) The Harry Potter
1: movies suck. <laughs> they're, they're not that good. They're really not that good. <laughs> I mean, I will say, like, the first two that Chris Columbus directed way back when, those, those were rough. That was kind of a rough set. But I was like, you know what? I'm, g- I'm going to do it. I'm going to get through all of them. Uh, once you, yeah. I just watched the fourth one. Not bad. I'm like, once you get into some of the later ones, they're not bad. But they're not... Like, it's amazing to me, and I don't remember this from the books, and fans, friends, Harry Potter, acolytes, feel free to, you know, come at me for this. But I don't remember the plots really not holding up as well as they don't. Ooh, <laughs> like
0: yeah. No, like, There's I... a lot
1: of shit that I'm like, wait, that doesn't make any fucking sense.
0: I uh, unfortunately, I think uh, I'm I'm very happy that certain cable channels like HBO have started taking things like Golden Compass and and mm-hmm. um, which is actually his Dark Materials, but uh, those right. kind of books and turning them into series. Yeah, because there's just no way, and unfortunately, the reason why I'll, I'll also own this opinion. My opinion is that the Harry potter movies are not good i won't make a universal statement there but the reason for that is because so that the movie wasn't 18 hours long they mm-hmm. had to leave out stuff and just the way that it shook down okay. was that it left out stuff that was yeah, my favorite parts of the books.
1: okay like, i'm glad you said that because i'm watching these and i'm remembering like I was never a huge Harry Potter fan, but I enjoyed mm-hmm, the books. Mm-hmm. And watching these movies, I'm like, I remember these stories being a lot better.
0: <laughs> no, and I think if you if you were to go back to the books, I mean, there's definitely, like, I have... Um, ooh, when was the last time I reread the series?
1: I mean, I haven't read them since Deathly Hallows came out.
0: I I know I have reread them since then, but... I can't remember. It's been a hot sack. But they were still, you know, there's definitely like the the, the earlier books are a bit more like immature in terms of her writing um mm-hmm. and, and how the care like, you know, the stuff that the characters do and everything, because obviously they are like young school children. But there's also like some really like some really good stuff in there. Some stuff Mm -hmm. that was a lot of fun to read and it still holds up, but the movies it's like, I I continue to be mad that so much time and money and energy was spent on stuff like the Quidditch matches Mm -hmm. in the movies. And in a lot of cases, like making them much longer and i don't know i was always like okay quidditch like yeah that's that's my i'm sure there are people that are like Quidditch
1: is my favorite part of <laughs> yeah. the novel. i think we know some of those people but
2: you um, asshole. <laughs> yeah.
1: i had i had the same reaction i think in the second movie there's a quidditch match so i was just like this there's no point in having this like this isn't advancing the plot at all no
0: and it's so long in the movies yeah. like i'm like why are we sp- spending so much time on this
1: well and then that's another thing and i don't remember this from the books but i'm watching the movies and being like quidditch as a sport makes no fucking sense no
0: it doesn't because (laughs) i mean it's just not i mean yeah it's just not a real sport i I
1: feel like i remember feeling like the sport kind of made sense in the book but in the movies Not at all.
0: Right. But I think that's, I mean, I think that's part of the, and I don't know because I haven't read the Lord of the Rings books, so I don't know how those movies hold up, but I think it's, they hold up pretty good. I think it's something that you're going to encounter anytime you have a book that is based in, an imaginary world mm-hmm. like so much time if you're doing a movie so much time has to be spent building that world yeah. and if you're doing a book you've got the expanse you know mm-hmm. to do it well, and why but... why
1: like you said the series tend to be better um, yeah like I'm, I'm real excited i could geek out about this like for an entire episode so i won't Ugh, the, the stand uh, miniseries is starting i think in like a day or two uh the cbs all access version of the stand and i and is that start? starting i think i'm like i don't think it starts tonight but it's this week i think it's on the Ooh, 17th
0: exciting yeah because it's I've like never i've never it, exciting
1: well and i've never seen you know there's the 90s miniseries like abc miniseries that mm-hmm. is fine it's got its good points but i've never seen the like definitive adaptation of that Oh. Do you?
0: I feel like we've we've had this conversation, but I'll ask it again just so our our, our listeners—I almost said our readers but uh, <laughs> our listeners can hop in on this conversation if they'd like to as well. But what, in your opinion, is the best film adaptation of a novel?
1: Of a novel, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah! Mm, wow, put me on the spot. You know, actually, m- m- one of my favorite ones, and I think it's because it uh, it actually significantly improves on the book. Mm-hmm. Is it's a movie that people uh, may not even be that aware of called Little Children? I had Kate Oh, let, yeah, yeah, yeah!
0: Patrick Wilson. I Patrick think?
1: Wilson. I love that movie, and then I read the book and was pretty solidly let down by the book. Oh, really? Um, so you were you okay? And actually in the same vein, I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, the absolute best adaptation of a novel that I've ever seen because it actually redeems a pretty bad book. Uh-huh. is uh let the right one in the oh, vampire movie yeah right the, the the novel fucking sucks and i'm sorry if you're a fan like come at me like let's fight about it because I you're just throwing
0: down book. gauntlet after yeah. gauntlet
1: <laughs> i'm in a mood and we
0: haven't even started our stories <laughs> yeah. yet you're just like come at me for this eat a dick for that <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah no i i actually legitimately hated the book when i read it and i read it after i saw the movie um and it was just like wow yeah this movie fixes all of the problems with this book
0: and there's two right there's a i don't know what the what country the original version comes from
1: uh norway i believe it's either norway or sweden
0: it's something like One of Nordic, those. right? Yeah. It's something northern. I think it's European. I think it's
1: Swedish. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> Swedish actually.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me and uh, me and my best friend saw that movie down at the Guild.
1: I saw it at the back C- in the day, in Santa Fe at the little art house.
0: Yes, fantastic. Yeah.
1: and then actually, the American remake, Let Me In, which they shot here in New Mexico, not bad. It's not, it's okay. not terrible.
0: I didn't know that that was f- filmed here. Mm-hmm.
1: Shot in Los Alamos, actually. Primarily. Yeah, we have we know people who worked on it. Um, We do? Yeah. I can't remember who off the top of my (laughs) head. But I do know that people we know worked on it.
0: It's like friends of ours and they're like, thanks, Scotty. Yeah, whatever. Um, My answer for that question. You didn't ask it, but I'm gonna say it anyways. My answer for that question is the film adaptation of like water for chocolate. It is Oh
1: yeah, you've told me that.
2: Before. it
0: is so faithful to the book mm-hmm. i mean like ex- exquisitely so
1: yeah yeah i yeah. remember you, t- you talking about that
0: and and in, in an incredible way because the book is is you know probably one of my top three mm-hmm. books like favorite books and most influential books for my life but um yeah the 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 film is is excellent and every now and then i'll be watching something I'll be watching some show or something and somebody from like from the movie like water for chocolate will pop up somewhere and i'm like
2: fuck
1: uh, mm-hmm.
0: yes so i get really excited for that nice.
1: yeah yeah i've never seen the movie or read the book but you've, <sighs> you've mentioned it several times i've actually thought i should read it i should it's get so out of good. my like horror box for a minute and read that book
0: Yeah, it's really good. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a beautiful story. It had like the construct of it is wonderful. It's a love story told over decades and each chapter begins with a recipe. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, and I know, I feel like I, there've been blogs and, and I actually saw a a TikTok about it. Uh, I'm not on TikTok, but I will occasionally dip into TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, a woman who was making one of the dishes, which is, I think it's quails with rose petals. Mm -hmm. Um, and everything's really, like everything is gorgeous. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a great book.
1: I love it. Yeah yeah that's one now if, to go back because i just i have to I have to bring the stephen king back into the conversation oh yeah to go back to because i thought what you were going to ask me is what's the best stephen king novel adaptation mm-hmm. and i've got to say the most faithful one by far is the green mile mm-hmm. i'm not sure that's the best of his stories though so i'm gonna say probably Shawshank redemption or stand by me Shashank. his his horror stuff doesn't translate as well typically. well
0: but I think that I think again we this is something that we've talked about. I think part of it is is because he like there's a lot of stuff that's like it is this unnamed terror. It is mm-hmm. this and you know, it is a great example of like when, you know, when the miniseries came out, you know, freaking twenty-seven years ago or whatever <laughs> it was. You know, like yes, the monster at the end is kind of what was in the mini series, but it just doesn't
1: it's it's real stupid and it <laughs> just
0: doesn't yeah they, it's, pun- it, they
1: punch a giant spider to death
0: right. <laughs> 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 if-
1: <laughs> it's real dumb like like the, the original no i'm just thinking of fun, of but so- that ending is real fucking
0: dumb i'm just thinking of somebody who's like listening to this being like oh i should pick up it because i haven't read it and that sounds and then you're like they punch a giant spider to death and they're like
1: I mean, the book, the ending of the book is definitely different. Right. Um, It's like the miniseries is just the jankiest, most low-budget network TV version of it they could have done.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the thing, right, is that like, you know, when you are when you are writing or reading, you are not your your imagination isn't bound by any kind of practicality. Yeah. So anything that you can dream up in in that creative space and you know, whatever a writer dreams up and whatever mm-hmm. the reader conjures when reading those words is always going to be more mm-hmm. robust. Right. because it's you know we're, we're putting our own spin onto it and our imaginations are running well, wild and i
1: think a big reason and we'll get off of this i promise in a second but whatever a big, a big reason we, I mean, it's our fucking podcast we can talk about whatever <laughs> we haven't even introduced ourselves yet but um <laughs> we have not um no i think the big reason stephen king's horror stuff doesn't always translate that well is because really when you read his best horror novels they're really so deeply rooted in like the minutiae of character yeah.
2: mm-hmm. and like
1: these locations these small towns in maine that just feel mm-hmm. so lived in and then in the movies they just don't have time for it so they're like uh I don't know, rabid dog just put a bunch of like shaving cream on the dog's face and have it right. go with the lady you know and it I... just doesn't it just it, it, it's always like the cliff's notes version Right. Um or they just don't get the care and this is this is the third like come at me motherfuckers statement I'm gonna make. But this is why the movie adaptation of The Shining is so fucking god awful. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's my least favorite. And I'm gonna say even even like something like Maximum Overdrive, like some of the worst <laughs> stinking movies. I'll take those over The Shining any day because The Shining just fills me with rage. Because not only is it like he fucks up the characters top to bottom, it's also just a deeply misogynistic portrayal right. of that character of Wendy. And right. that's not the character in the book. That's not no, her.
0: no, she's a badass in the book. Yeah. Yeah, and I think even if the movie was like really well- done i don't know how you can watch it knowing what he put shelly duvall through yeah and 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 like i yeah i don't know i'm gonna say this i know that there are a lot of directors out there that are known for doing like you know 137 takes and for Mm -hmm. wanting to tear down their actors And the thing is, is that if, if that is what is necessary for you to get a good performance out of an actor, you are a shitty director.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and, and when you, I mean, so like hot take, I actually sort of dislike Stanley Kubrick across the board. Mm. Like I, there's not, the only Stanley Kubrick film I really like is Dr. Strangelove from, Mm you know, the, like 1966 or whatever but it's it's because the acting in his movies is so stilted and it's because he he doesn't treat the actors and the performances as uh anything remotely human it's all just props he's moving around like i i really think to me kubrick is just like the classic style over substance
0: yeah, oh, yeah, I just think it, it it you know, one, if it takes you 137 tries to do anything, the mm-hmm. problem is you, yeah. like, that is a, a lack of a vocabulary, that is a lack well, of understanding you, of, of the people that you're working with.
1: When you um, manage to everything. have, like, really good actors working for you, and, and you consistently get shitty performances out of them. Yeah, you're like, the common denominator, dickhead. You're, you're the problem, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I am not a fan of The Shining. Yeah. Um, so yeah, bring your knives. Like we'll we'll go to war over this. <laughs> we, <laughs> this is, as I said earlier in the week in another conversation, this is the hill I'm going to die on. So.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a gauntlets hills. All sorts yeah. of stuff being thrown down. Welcome, everybody. My name is Amelia Emploro. I am an <laughs> actor and theater maker here in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
1: And I'm Scotty Milder. I'm a filmmaker and horror author here also in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, and this
0: is the Weirdest Thing podcast.
1: This is our podcast where we talk about weird shit. And I just want to say, uh, happy, I guess when you guys hear this, it's going to be happy last night of Hanukkah. Hey, yeah, and you guys, uh, you can't see it, but i got the menorah sitting on the shelf behind oh, me. Oh,
0: that's what the cool mood lighting is. Okay, yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Very, um, very cool. Happy Hanukkah, happy
1: Hanukkah. everybody. Um, uh, and so welcome. I think it's appropriate that uh, I'm actually going to talk about uh, some Jewish stuff tonight.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah. Um. So after our episode last week, and we decided... Even though I went first last week, I think because of the specific stories we're telling, we decided I should go first again. this Yeah,
2: week. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So kind of after our little like sidebar at the end where we start talking about uh, Whitey Bulger and then different you know, mafia societies and stuff, I decided I really did want to tell a Jewish gangster story. Hey, so this is going to be the story of the last words of Dutch Schultz.
0: Yes, I'm excited. Um, I know nothing about this.
1: Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a pretty crazy story. So well, I want to start off a little bit with just talking about the kind of the persona of the Jewish gangster. Mm-hmm. And this really goes to the idea of the, quote, tough Jew.
2: Mm, okay. um,
1: and there's actually a book. It's called Tough Jews, Fathers, Sons, and Gangster Dreams by a guy named Richard Cohen, which I have not read the whole thing. I've read pieces of it. I really should sit down and read the whole book. Um, but he kind of talks about this. The way to think about the idea of the tough Jew, and, it, mm-hmm. and it's a... And it's a complicated subject to talk about, Mm -hmm. but it's something that I think a lot about kind of in Mm -hmm. my own, I don't know, persona.
0: (laughs) Right. As you wander the world.
1: Uh, As I wander through the world as a Jew. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I just, I accidentally made a wandering Jew joke. uh, problematic in all sorts of different ways
0: <laughs> i'm sorry oh my god it's just i don't like it makes me laugh that you that you say that and it also makes me think of uh there's an episode of Shit's creek where johnny rose is like in this situation with this guy in the town named bob and bob they, they're talking about bagels for some reason and bob keeps going you know well like you would know what a, a good bagel is because you're you know and johnny is like because i'm jewish and Bob's like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah like, I mean, you know, and they, they go through this whole conversation where Johnny Rose is like, you can say it. You can say it. Yeah. A it's word. not a slur. It's not a slur. <laughs> and he goes, I can't explain it, but it feels like a bad word. And like,. <laughs> 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 and knowing that i i I have known other people from other like ethnicities and other other groups and stuff who've had similar conversations with other white yeah. people it it is a thing that cracks me up yeah. so okay um, wandering jew
1: wandering Jew <laughs> <Here we go. laughs> otherwise known as scotty milder <laughs> uh, <laughs> no so so the way I think about the tough jew and I'm not an expert in this subject like I said I haven't even finished the book, but I do know a little bit about it is. You know, it's a counterpoint to, like, the pop culture depiction of Jews mm. so often, which is, think about, and I'm not talking about the, like, creepy stuff, but think about the Woody Allen character. You know, the kind of the nebbishy worrywart. You right, know, that, right. like, in so much of pop culture, the Jew is kind of the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the nerdy little nebbish with the little yarmulke, you know. And this is like, I mean, everyone has seen this trope in movies and tv you know yeah for you know as long as we've been alive yeah. well the counterpoint to this is the character of the tough jew which you don't see as much anymore in po- okay. uh, pop culture but this is the idea of like the jew is like a street tough you know the jew is like a hoodlum okay. kind of thing okay. um but it's also it's like the jew as like a tough guy who's a mm-hmm. macho man you know, which is and something I think people who aren't Jewish don't realize that this is actually very, I think, and I'm only talking anecdotally from my own experience and mm-hmm. experience of my family. This is, this is a tension that kind of exists within Jewish communities today is this, you know, the way that Jews are depicted versus mm-hmm. the way we feel. Right. Which is, you know, we feel like we are a resilient people. That has right. put up with a lot of shit over the world, over the years, over the centuries, millennia. Right. Over not, the millennia. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And not really willing to uh, put up with it anymore. So right. here's, I just want to read one quote. This is from that Tough Jews book by rich Cohen, Richard Cohen. And he's talking about uh, a group of guys. This is from the first chapter. He's talking about a group of guys kind of sitting around, I think in a deli, having conversations with, like old friends. He's sort of describing them. He says, a breed of such men thrive in Los Angeles, brokers, lawyers, entertainers, entertaining lawyers, promoters, moguls, former furriers, distributors, importers, exporters, self-promoters, men of leisure. They fled Brooklyn 35, 40 years ago and have shed as many outward signs of their heritage as would be shed, yet still retain something of the old world, a final fleeting glimpse of what their fathers must have been. Their faces are concentrated, their talk full of warnings, premonitions of things to come of time repeating itself, of good men stripped of all worldly goods and left to fight, again, with nothing but instinct. Every time he enters a room, Asher, who's one of the people he's talking about, every time he enters a room, Asher notes where each man stands, who poses the biggest threat, and who, if necessary, he'll take out first. Quote, this is the stuff I'm thinking about all the time, he says, wiping his hands. For me, it's just like a crossword puzzle. Wow. And that really, like, when I read that, I just read that today, you know, sort of trying to scan through the book. And that kind of resonated with me because it th- makes me think about, like, even in some ways my own dad,
2: mm-hmm. who grew up
1: kind of tough in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And my dad, you know, my dad's a great guy. He's a real sweetheart, but he's got a toughness to him. And mm-hmm. one thing I will say about my dad is he's always kind of scanning for the threat. Mm-hmm. He's always kind of looking like, how am I going to get screwed over? Yeah. You know, there's, there's a real strain of uh, sort of... Fatalistic cynicism, right. I think, that exists in a lot of Jewish people. That really comes from you know our history,
2: right?
0: Well, um, and that, I mean that's uh, to to break in for just a moment. You know, we're starting to learn a lot more about generational trauma mm-hmm. and the way that that stuff gets passed down. You know, in our in our DNA. So that if you if you come from a people. Uh, who have been, I can't, I mean, I can't even say like marginalized. If you have come from a people who have been oppressed, mm-hmm. that is a blueprint in your DNA that gets passed down from your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, you know, right now what is sort of in the, um, in the spotlight right now is the generational trauma of, um, of within the black community Mm -hmm. but i think that that's true for anybody you know if if that's that's true for anybody who is an indigenous you know uh, native peoples i think that's true for the jewish community Mm -hmm. i think it's true uh you know the practices and everything that have been lost from like the indigenous uh what is now like the latinx the latinx community Mm -hmm. uh all that stuff so yeah all that stuff gets all that stuff gets passed down so even if your life hasn't necessarily experienced it
1: right and this is where and i I don't want to go too deeply into this because this is the type of thing that gets me into trouble but like (laughs) the the conversation around jews and white privilege is always really complicated you know the idea of the jew as a quote white person right is a really complicated notion and uh i that that's sort of a topic for another podcast probably (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) or another episode because it's just it's that's a deep 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 complicated subject um yeah yeah but you know so there is this this persona of the tough jew Mm -hmm. um that i think exists even today and and unfortunately i think you know there's a part of me you know part of why i'm fascinated by this subject and by the subject of the jewish gangster in general Mm -hmm. is there's a part of me that is really drawn to it I'll admit and you know like here I am I'm a Jewish guy but I don't think I'm I don't think anyone would look at me and say like oh you know he's a Woody Allen type you know I'm into metal you know (laughs) like
0: oh, I was like in what way a Woody Allen type okay yes I get
1: you oh yeah yeah well in in multiple (laughs) ways I'm not a Woody Allen type let's say that (laughs) but you know there is a part of me that is drawn to this persona of the tough Jew Mm-hmm. and like i think about you know even like it's not just gangsters it, it's you know you see this in like jewish comedians i mm. think and it's something I, in fact i think i might have even first encountered the term tough jew from listening to mark maron's podcast because
2: ah, mm-hmm. he's talked
1: about it and you know he's got a little bit of the persona of the tough jew a little bit okay. it's the jew that you don't fuck with it's the jew who's like you know he's gonna call you out on your shit right um and you know there's a thing i mean even in his own way i would say like mel brooks has elements of this you know because Mm -hmm. one thing about the the idea of this kind of i don't know jewish persona is like we're gonna make the anti-semitic joke before you can we're gonna beat you to the punch right even like tonight i did the wandering juju you know (laughs) um you know it's a like it's a like you're not gonna get one up on me kind Mm -hmm. of thing but unfortunately i do think this is a thing that can become very toxic because I think some of the worst aspects, and again, this is a deeper subject than I want to really get into tonight, but some of the worst aspects of like Israeli politics um, Mm. boils down into this tough Jew. Don't fuck with us kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And also like, frankly, like Harvey Weinstein, I think typifies like some of the worst aspects of this tough Jew.
2: Yeah.
1: Attitude you know the the belligerent don't fuck with me i'm gonna like scream in your face yeah kind of persona so it's a really it's a it's a tricky complicated tense kind of subject and mm-hmm. one that like i say i wrestle with and it's sort of the idea of the tough jew really finds it's like most i think distilled personification in the jewish gangster Okay. So I talked a little bit about Jewish gangsters last week, and how you know they were part. You know, they started as kind of ethnic uh, immigrant gangs. You know, Yiddish speakers, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of marginalized, not having access to other job opportunities. You know, and you see this across. You know, like I said, this is you know the roots of the mafia, the Irish mob, Jewish mob, Russian gangsters. You know, this is just something you see across the board with marginalized communities. Yeah. And Dutch Schultz, I, I would say the two. Jewish gangsters who kind of typify who are sort of the almost like prototypical or stereotypical Jewish gangster would be Dutch Schultz and Bugsy Siegel. Um, yeah. And Bugsy, he's, he's a, he's a fascinating character in his own right. Yeah. But d- let me just uh, kind of go through the history of Dutch Schultz and then I'll get to the weirdness around his last
2: words. Okay. Cause that's, okay. that's where
1: things go real wild and off the rails.
2: Okay.
1: Um, so Dutch Schultz, he was born Arthur Simon Flagenheimer on August 6, 1901, in the Bronx. His parents were German-Jewish immigrants. Uh, I did not find, like, I think he grew up pretty poor. I did not find specifically what his, like, father did for a living. Mm -hmm. But I did see that his father essentially abandoned the family when Arthur was a child. I think by, like, 1910, his parents were divorced. And this was apparently a real sore spot for him as he got older. He would constantly deny throughout his life that his father actually abandoned the family. Ooh. so he grew up poor in the bronx and he ended up dropping out of school in the eighth grade so that he could help support he, his mother and then he had a, apparently a younger sister he worked a lot of jobs it sounds like mainly as like a press pressman for like publishing companies i think he also worked as a truck driver for a while okay. and then he moved into like working as a bouncer things like that so he started working part-time at a mafia-owned bronx nightclub and his kind of first i think he was a teenager and his first sort of foray into like the criminal world was he would actually rob the craps games. (laughs) And then this eventually graduated into, he started burgling houses and he ended up getting busted. Uh, When he was 18, he got caught breaking into an apartment and sent to what is now the Roosevelt Island prison. I think it was called like Blackwell's prison or something at the time. Okay. He was considered an quote, unmanageable prisoner.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Yikes.
1: So, okay. Yeah. So they transferred him to a work farm on Long Island um, where he promptly escaped and then got rearrested. <laughs> okay. And I think they added like two months to his sentence, but he ended up being par- paroled on December 8th, 1920. So he was like 19 years old. Started working for this trucking company called Schultz Trucking. And I think this is where he got the Schultz. In his right. Nom de plume or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After the passage of prohibition, this company, the Schultz Trucking immediately began smuggling in liquor from Canada. Okay. And just so you guys understand, like the mafia, the mob, organized crime in this country would not have been what it is or what it became without Prohibition. Prohibition essentially created the mafia as it sort of grew into. It existed before, obviously.
0: I don't know when humans are going to get it through our thick fucking skulls that banning something is never the actual answer to anything. Yeah. Like I I don't I can't think of a single thing that people well, no. I mean like Aust- is it Australia that mm-hmm. was like hey guys no more fucking guns and I mean like that that solved it.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I think because people in Australia kind of were like yeah, we don't need these guns. Like I think it was sort
0: right. of they culture- were like yeah, we don't want to fucking die in a mcdonald's either
1: right yeah i mean i think it it was yeah it was banned but i think there was sort of buy-in from the public on that yeah that followed a really awful mass shooting in tasmania right and so i think there was was it like in the 90s or 80s or something but i mean you know we could talk about the the drug cartels you know we talk about all the violence done in mexico well that exists because of the illegal drug trade in this mm-hmm.
2: country mm-hmm
1: and largely all you pot smokers out there think about where your marijuana is coming from. Cause a lot of that is, is pot money.
2: Yeah.
0: If you're not, if you're not currently living in a state that has legalized cannabis, mm-hmm. uh, just consider consider what where you that. are funding yeah. with your dollars.
1: Exactly. So yeah. So you know the mafia, specifically the Sicilian mob, but even these you know Jewish gangs, Irish gangs, they were kind of neighborhood organizations. You know, mm-hmm. neighborhood corruption. It didn't become this massive enterprise until the start of Prohibition. And so, like a company like the Schultz Trucking, which Dutch Schultz worked for, you know, this is a good example. They were a legitimate trucking company, probably you know involved in some shady stuff but then they saw a market with the rise of prohibition so they started smuggling in liquor and beer from canada and dutch you know he joined up he started working for them not just as a truck driver but on that level and that's Mm -hmm. when he started using the nickname dutch schultz and so dutch is actually a bastardization of the word deutsch which Mm -hmm. essentially means like german like you know deutschland yeah now by 1925 dutch was working as a bouncer at a Bronx speakeasy. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the speakeasy is a guy named Joey No. And he was real impressed with Dutch because Dutch was known for like he would beat the shit out of people if they got out of line.
2: Mm-hmm. He was he was
1: sort of the most ruthless and brutal of these bouncers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so Joey went to Dutch and was like, hey, you want to be my partner? And Dutch said, sure. Um you yeah, know he's in his mid-20s at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great opportunity. So he joined up with Joey No as partner, and they started opening speakeasies throughout the Bronx. Dutch even went so far as, you know, when they were uh, smuggling in their liquor, he would ride shotgun with the beer delivery trucks, mm-hmm. uh, literally with a shotgun, mm-hmm. uh, to make sure they didn't get hijacked. Is that um, where that
0: phrase comes from? Mm-hmm.
1: It's from old stagecoaches, from the – Ah!
0: From,
1: okay. from like the old west you know they would have someone who would ride shotgun you know to like repel raids and bandits and whatnot um, jesus okay yeah. <laughs>
0: how, how do we fight how did anybody survive <laughs> i
1: know how are we still alive as a species um, <laughs> so here's a here's a fun fucked up disgusting story from this time mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. uh so this gang the no schultz gang it was called at the time Or at least this is what Wikipedia calls it. They kidnapped one of their competitors and hung him by his thumbs from a meat hook. Because I think there was like they were fighting over territory and stuff.
2: Uh huh. And then
1: they wrapped a gonorrhea-infected bandage around the guy's eyes.
2: Eye. Eye,
1: exactly. (laughs) Now the the guy's family ended up paying a ransom, I think, of thirty five thousand dollars. So they let him go, but then he went blind because he had fucking eye gonorrhea.
0: I'm just wondering where they got, like, who they were like, hey, you've got gonorrhea, come over here. Yeah, and then, like, yeah. Wikipedia what did they, not expand on how, What they did to get that gonorrhea matter on yeah.
1: there? Yeah, yeah. There's oh,
0: yeah.
1: a lot of stuff we're probably just as well not knowing.
0: Right. Story. <laughs>
1: right. Um, but yeah, so the guy went blind after they released him and so after that no one was really interested in fucking with dutch schultz Mm -hmm. um he really built his reputation on acts like that so they just rose and rose and rose in power and influence and they ended up becoming rivals to it was it was sort of the the time period was before the consolidation of the mafia in new york into the five families i think at the time it was still called the commission Mm -hmm. they later on became the five families that we know today like the colombo family the Genovese, things like that Right, But uh, Dutch and his gang, they were rivals with the mafia. And then they ended up expanding into Manhattan and essentially went to war almost immediately with the Irish mob, which was led by uh, – the Irish mob in the area was led by a guy named Jack, quote, Legs Diamond.
2: Um, <laughs> okay.
1: Pretty famous <laughs> Irish gangster. I, I read about him in that Paddywhacked book. Okay. Um, and this is one of the stories where it's like, you know, the the Irish mob was essentially – wiped out at this time period by the italian and jewish gang so they went to war with legs diamonds gang and this led to joey no being shot he managed to shoot back and kill the driver of the getaway car okay but then he died of an infection days later and this enraged dutch because dutch and he were actually very close friends and dutch looked up to him as a mentor mm-hmm. so dutch just you know what's the phrase from Pulp Fiction, just went medieval on there right <laughs> okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) so shortly after no's death there was a major jewish gangster a guy named arnold rothstein who is very very famous jewish gangster and gambler he's he's largely credited with fixing the i think the 1919 world series is the black Sox scandal
2: oh yeah
1: um rothstein was killed uh not long after joey no and uh at the time the the story was that he had bad debt with actually another irish gangster i can't okay. remember i didn't write the guy's name down so this guy had Rothstein killed but the rumor was that it was actually dutch because apparently arnold Rothstein had been working with legs diamonds gang Ooh. so killing okay. someone like arnold Rothstein was a big deal because he right. was i mean it's it's like killing you know the head of the gambinos or something mm-hmm. he was a major major player and then shortly after that uh legs diamond was also shot but he recovered he ended up taking off <laughs> he was just like fuck this moved his operation up to albany new york and then was killed in 1931 and i didn't look into whether that was sort of a continuation of the these gang wars or if it was another conflict but he was shot and mm-hmm. killed in 1931 at the same time dutch was having rebellions in his own organization so he had uh, his major enforcer at the time was a guy named vincent cole who's also a pretty famous gangster hitman Mm -hmm. from the time period he didn't think he was being paid enough he wanted to be equal partners with dutch dutch was like go fuck yourself so Mm -hmm. he basically broke away tried to set himself up as a rival uh to dutch and so this led to a bloody 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 essentially civil war in this organization and then cole ended up actually getting nicknamed mad dog cole because one of his assassination attempts on dutch ended up leading to a little kid getting killed Ooh. I don't know. that I didn't write down the details of that because I thought that's sad. That's, yeah. That's a but Dutch essentially won that war, kept consolidating his power. And then at the end of Prohibition, he had to move into other revenue streams. Mm-hmm. So he moved into racketeering, specifically uh, the Harlem Numbers racket, which I think, I think you're going to talk about. A little bit, but yeah. Also extortion, union corruption, all of the classic... I think loan sharking, all of it. Yeah. Protection rackets, all of that. Here's just one story about how nasty a dude Dutch Schultz was. So he okay. suspe- he had a subordinate, a guy named Julie Martin. He suspected the guy of skimming about $70,000 from the extortion rackets that they were doing. Mm. So uh, D- Dutch decided to confront him. This was in 1935. So this is not long before Dutch himself was killed. He invited Julie Martin to a meeting at the Harmony Hotel in Cohees, cohoes new york mm-hmm. he also had his chief enforcer a guy named bo weinberg who's gonna pop up again and then a mob lawyer named dixie davis were also at the okay. meeting okay schultz was kind of known to be an out of control temperamental dude um also a hard drinker mm-hmm. so he and julie martin were sitting there getting drunk in this meeting at the hotel and then Schultz decided to confront Martin about the missing money. Uh, and Julie Martin was like, fuck you. I didn't steal the money. How dare you accuse me? And Dutch Schultz was like, well, fuck you. And then sucker punched him in the face. So things okay. are escalating. Yep. At that point, Julie Martin's like, okay, okay, okay. I, t- I only took $20,000. But I was entitled to that money because you weren't paying me enough. Okay. So here's what Dixie Davis, the the mob lawyer, had to say what happened. <sighs> uh this is a quote he says dutch had been drinking and suddenly he had his gun out he wore his pistol under his vest tucked inside his pants right against his belly one jerk at his vest and he had it in his hand all in the same quick motion he swung it up stuck it in jules martin's mouth and pulled the trigger
2: oh my god it was
1: as simple and undramatic as that just one quick motion of the hand dutch schultz did that murder just as casually as if he were picking his teeth Ooh. yeah it's so not 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 a nice guy wow not a good guy and like i i do want to like this is a good moment to kind of make it clear i'm fascinated by these characters right i am not some i'm not a gangster worshiper i don't
2: right
1: like in fact one of my favorite gangster movies of all time was hot take everybody good fellas real good movie <laughs>
0: yeah that movie just is it's
1: real good it's, it's real good a real good movie but what I love about that movie versus a lot of the gangster films, even a movie like The Godfather, which I love, is mm-hmm. that I think Goodfellas does a great job of showing, like, these were thugs. These weren't cool guys. They were, they Ooh, yeah. were pretty stupid most of the time. They were assholes. Like, you didn't want to hang out with them. Like, they're fascinating to watch. But, like, you, know, you can imagine, like, there's a romanticism between Michael Corleone and Don Vito Corleone from The Godfather. Right. Films. Not in a movie like Goodfellas. You know, and that's how I, when I read stories about people like Dutch Schultz, I always think it's like, these guys were thugs. Like they were, they were just bad people.
0: Yeah, I think it's that it's, it is the thing that is like equally fascinating and sort of repulsive. It's, it's the extraordinarily volatile nature, right? Which is, Mm -hmm. you know. Again, in Goodfellas, uh, not to do too much, like, Scorsese worship here, but, right? Yeah, Scorsese, Scorsese. yes. But, you know, that's I think the scene between Joe Pesci and, what's his name, Spider, the waiter guy, right? And how it's, like, everything's fine, and then the next minute, you know, it's it's fucking not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that it was just like that, and it was no big deal, and... You know, okay now somebody's dead and whatever and now we we go back to doing what the fuck we right. were doing
1: well and i think that spider scene is great because it just shows how petty so much of it was because it's just yeah. the guy who just said you know go fuck yourself tommy and he couldn't yeah. take it and so he killed the guy you yeah. know and that's how i feel about dutch schultz i mean was it the money he was mad at or was it, uh, this guy basically being like hey i was entitled to that money because you fucked me over
0: right
1: you know i think i think it's just a lot of you know sort of dumb machismo
0: right everything is about like respect and being disrespected or being respected and and you know not allowing not wanting to let anybody disrespect you because how could you do that and what will it say about you and yeah
2: yeah
1: yeah so after he shot this guy jules martin he then turned to dixie the the lawyer and was like hey sorry sorry for killing him in front of you (laughs) <laughs> okay and then uh dixie davis later said he read a story a newspaper story where they had found jules martin's body with a dozen stab wounds which he thought was weird because well i saw him shoot the guy mm-hmm. so he called dutch schultz and he was like what, what's this what's this about the dozen stab wounds and dutch schultz was just like eh, i cut his heart out just kind of like shrugged and was like yeah i cut his heart out wow. so again yeah not a nice guy this dutch yeah. schultz i'm not i'm not crying any tears for this guy. Yeah. So then, you know, post Al Capone, you know, the government really realized, oh, the way to go after these guys is these tax evasion charges. Yep. So a guy named Thomas Dewey, who was the U.S. Attorney at the time, and you guys might know, any history bus might know Thomas Dewey is the guy who ran later against Harry Truman for president. Yep. And it's that famous Truman holding up the Dewey Defeats Truman newspaper, right. which, like, <laughs> Because I guess they they just assumed Dewey was going to win. Yikes. So same guy. Same guy. At the time, he was the U.S. attorney essentially (laughs) – i almost hate to say this essentially the rudy giuliani of his day Ooh, okay <laughs> yeah. that paints a that paints a picture okay. i mean i don't think he was he was maybe not the dumpster fire of a human that rudy giuliani right is. maybe he
0: didn't have the hair dye dripping down his face yeah exactly
1: oh, poor oh,
2: guy.
0: okay uh, 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 hold on i have to say this <laughs> go for it i'm i'm, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be like oh, oh man like let's extend a hand towards Rudy Giuliani because he has 100% stepped in it. However, good grief, just the humiliation of having hair dye run down your face. Yeah. And there's been, you know, there's been other there's been other celebrities who have had other, you know, self-tanner Miss running apps. down their legs and yeah, and that kind of stuff. And it just my my mirror neuron shame flares up so bad yeah. like i cringe so hard that like my molars hurt
1: yeah i mean i, I see think you've, you've got a lot more empathy than i do because Ooh. i see stuff like that and i just delight in it i, I just know. delight in the just, shot and oh
0: god I, yeah. I just i'm just a better person <laughs> than you are i mean I think that's, <laughs> that really is
1: what it boils down
0: to <laughs> oh my god that is not at all
1: true <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i don't think thomas dewey he wasn't like that but he was like this is how giuliani made his name back before mm. he was mayor of new york city is he mm-hmm. was U.S. attorney he went after the mob
2: mm. okay um
1: and so you know thomas dewey he was kind of the same and he ended up indicting dutch in 1933 and dutch was like fuck this and immediately went on the run okay a year later he surrendered up in albany new york mm-hmm. and this was part of a plan because he wanted He didn't want to be prosecuted in New York City. So he thought if he, like, got the fuck out of there, they'd have to prosecute him somewhere else. So his idea was change the venue to upstate New York, where, like, I'm not as hated as I am in New York City. Okay. His first trial ended in a hung jury. Sorry, I'm burping again in the microphone. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Ended in a hung jury probably because Dutch bribed the jurors and then his second trial and if you've ever seen a movie called billy bathgate which i'm going to mention again in a little bit okay based on a novel by er doctor i feel like this happens in the movie billy bathgate which is about dutch schultz Uh, dustin hoffman plays dutch schultz Mm -hmm. for his second trial it, it, it got placed in a little town called malone up in upstate New York, mm-hmm. and, and Dutch really wanted to present himself as like a good citizen. He wanted to win people to his cause, so he was like giving cash out like left and right. He was give, donating money to local businesses. He was giving toys away to sick kids. He was okay. just like, "I'm I'm I'm not a bad guy. I'm Robin Hood. I'm Robin Hood. Uh, okay. That's what I am." And it worked because he was acquitted. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs>
0: I, that was not what I was expecting.
1: No, okay. yeah, it totally, totally worked. But he was effectively banned from New York City because the mayor of New York City, Fiorello Laguardia, the yep. guy that the airport's named after, yep. was like, "Fuck this guy." The next time he sets foot in New York City, we're arresting him on something. Well, we'll trump up the charge if we have. To. <laughs> okay. So Dutch was like, "Cool, cool, cool." I'm heading to New Jersey. So he ended up moving, tried to set up shop over in New York, New Jersey. This didn't last real long. So here's what happened. Here's, here's, here's the downfall of Dutch Schultz. Okay. So because his trials were so expensive, he started docking the commissions of all the people working for him. You know, the people going out collecting for the numbers rackets, et cetera. Mm-hmm. He was like, yeah, instead of giving you 20%, I don't know if these are the right numbers. I'm pulling shit out of my ass. But instead of giving you 20%, I'm going to give you 10%. Because this is part of the Arthur Fliegenheimer Legal Defense Fund. Okay. Heavy, heavy air quotes.
0: Okay. Uh I want to say something timely so bad.
1: Oh, I know exactly what you're thinking. I mean, if you want to say it, say it. I'm not gonna stop you.
0: (laughs) No, I won't. I think
1: think everybody knows what you're thinking. yep um but yeah so he he started docking from people working for him and they were like fuck you you can't do that and he was like fuck you i'm gonna do that and if you don't like it i'm gonna fucking kill you but instead of just rolling over they essentially formed a union and went on strike (laughs) okay and actually forced dutch to back down but this really led to consternation within his gang within his organization Mm -hmm. so if you remember this guy bo weinberg i mentioned before who was like his main enforcer Mm-hmm. was like, I think it's time to get rid of Dutch. And Bo wanted, he wanted to be the next boss.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we went to another New Jersey gangster, a guy named Longy Wilman, also another Jewish gangster, mm-hmm. um, for advice, saying, like, I'm just worried about, like, you know, the amount of money that Dutch is spending on his defense because the trial's still going on. This, okay. this is before he was uh, acquitted. And Longy Zwillman is like, let me hook you up with a friend of mine, a guy named Lucky Luciano who some of you guys may know that name if you don't know who lucky luciano is he's largely considered to be the father of the modern mafia you know everyone talks about al capone but al capone was really kind of this loose cannon that sort of burned fast and bright and then went down hard Mm -hmm. lucky luciano he really built the mafia that we know he you know started out of prohibition and really built it into this almost global enterprise right well this was like before this was before he had like really consolidated his power but he was he was a big deal he was still a big deal he ended up becoming the boss of bosses of the genovese crime family at this time i think he was just sort of like the head of the commission what they called the commission uh so beau went to Uh, Bo Weinberg went to Lucky Luciano and said, I want to get rid of Dutch Schultz. But if I do that, I want assurances that I'll be able to retain control over the gang. And Lucky Luciano was like, no, because he was assuming, as everyone was, the Dutch was going to be convicted on these tax evasion charges. Mm -hmm. He was like, so I don't don't need to stick my neck out for you. Let me Mm -hmm. just wait for this guy to go to prison, and then I'm going to move in and take over and just divide the spoils up amongst my gang. Mm Mm-hmm. And Butch, uh, Bo Weinberg was basically like, um, okay. Because, <laughs> like, no one's going up against Lucky Luciano. Yeah, yeah, And he was also, he was like, either way, he wanted to be rid of Dutch. So this was the plan. You know, Dutch is going to go to prison, and then we're just going to divide it up amongst us. And then Dutch was acquitted. And that totally threw a wrench into all yeah. these plans. So Dutch, once he was acquitted, he ended up arranging a meeting with Lucky Luciano. Uh, to figure out what to do and Luciano basically was like hey 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 I'm, I'm not trying to take anything over we were just uh we're minding the shop for you quote-unquote mm-hmm. uh while you were occupied with the trial and Dutch was like cool 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 anyway let's kill Thomas Dewey <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool awesome thanks for that L- sidebar yeah. let's kill this dude yep. yeah yeah Dutch oh, that tracks
1: and sidebar I m- forgot to mention this so after Dutch first met with Lucky Luciano and Luciana was like, no, you can have your organization back. This Bo Weinberg vanished, never to be seen again. So the guy who tried to take out his boss, gone. Um, it's
0: shit like this. It's shit like this with the mob. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, why would you ever fucking do anything? If I somehow got roped into the mob, I would just try to sit there and fucking keep my nose clean.
1: Yeah. I, I like, I. It not uh, <sighs> Yeah. No, I mean, going back to like the theme of a lot of this podcast is just how stupid criminals are so much of the time <laughs> like these are not these are not master criminals we're not talking professor moriarty here you know <laughs> um, this is not some like genius james bond villain i mean like this was entirely predictable that like why would he trust lucky luciano right you know well so so bo weinberg vanished never seen again probably under a parking lot with jimmy hoffa somewhere uh-huh. and then dutch goes to luciano i was like cool so i'm back let's kill Thomas Dewey oh and Lucky Luciano and the commission were like um no <laughs> we're not gonna do that because that's real fucking dumb and Dutch was like well I'm gonna do it anyway fuck you and basically stormed out of the meeting and so at this point Lucky Luciano was like hmm yeah what do we do about what this do we guy do? so he calls up a guy named Albert Anastasia, who you'll recognize the name from that West Wing episode we mentioned. Yep, 100%. <laughs> Albert Anastasia was head of an organization called Murder, Inc., um, which I should talk about at some point, too. It's uh, That's its own story. Yeah. Murder, Inc. is its own fascinating story. But they were essentially hitmen for hire. okay. And so Luciano went to Albert Anastasia and was like, yeah, we're going to take out Dutch Schultz. Oh, well, because he went to Albert Anastasia and Albert Anastasia was like, yeah, Dutch came to me and said he wanted us to stake out Thomas Dewey's apartment. So Luciano was like, yeah, no, time for this guy to go. So okay. they hired Murder, Inc. to kill Dutch Schultz. So this is the story of the shooting of Dutch okay.
0: Schultz. Okay, okay, I'm ready.
1: One of, one of the most famous gangland assassinations in the history of gangland assassinations okay so on october 23rd 1935 dutch went to dinner at a place called the palace chop house in newark new jersey uh it
0: was so good oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) just the name
1: palace chop house i want want to go get some fucking ribs or something
0: i bet they had like a wicked fucking potato side dish uh yum i'm so there
1: yeah um, he was there with his accountant, a guy named Otto Berman, who's also his kind of second in command was a guy named Abe Landau. Okay. And then his bodyguard, uh, was a guy named Bernard Lulu Rosencrantz. Lulu,
0: Julie, all, I know, all this yeah. stuff. Okay.
1: So they're sitting there having a nice dinner. Dutch gets up to go to the bathroom while he's in the bathroom. These two murder Inc. It men named Charles the bug workman okay. and Emmanuel Mindy Weiss. They came in the restaurant through the back door. Now, it's not clear to me exactly how Dutch himself got shot because Dutch was in the bathroom. The hitman went up to the table and they shot the three guys who were sitting there. Okay. So someone had to have gone into the bathroom at some point and also took a shot at Dutch. Anyway, Abe Landau was shot through the neck. And this severed his carotid artery. But he didn't die right away, which is really interesting. And then uh, Lulu Rosencrantz was hit multiple times. Also didn't die. None of the guys died right away. And uh I think and then Otto Berman, who was just an accountant, he also got shot. And I think mean, he was like down right away. Oh wow. Still okay. still didn't die right away, but he was he was like out of he was out of pocket. But Lando and Rosencrantz, even though they've been shot and one guy literally bleeding out of his carotid artery, they stand up and they start returning fire. And they actually force uh workman and weiss to run. My wife jumps into a getaway car and basically is like, get the fuck out of here and abandons Workman. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bye!
1: So Charles Workman's just running down the street and Landau Jesus. spurting blood out of his carotid artery. Fucking hell! Chases him down the street, shooting at him. Empties <sighs> his gun. Misses him with every single shot.
0: Oh, come on, man. Yeah.
1: And then collapses into a trash can.
2: Ugh, Okay.
1: Now, around this time, Dutch Schultz comes out of the bathroom. He goes to sit at the table. He's clutching his side and he's yelling for someone to call him an ambulance. So, like I said, somehow he got shot in this. I'm not sure how, but he got shot. Rosencrantz, uh, who again, filled with bullets at this point, goes up to the bartender who is hiding under the bar and says, like, Give me some change. The bartender's like, okay, here's a couple quarters or whatever.
0: I like that the bartender's still fucking in the place. Yeah.
1: And he like, wasn't like, uh, I'm out and I quit. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure he lasted much longer. I, w- oh. I mean, I certainly would quit after this.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but he's literally
1: hiding under the bar. Because he's just oh poor, poor schmo came to work this day. Yeah. Gives Lulu Rosencrantz a couple quarters. And Lulu Rosencrantz, again, filled with bullets, mm-hmm. goes to the payphone, calls an ambulance, and then collapses
2: okay
1: so medics arrived they realized that landau again shooting blood out of his carotid artery and mm-hmm. rosencrantz are the most seriously wounded so they sent them immediately to new york city newark newark city hospital okay uh and then they called a the second ambulance for schultz and uh, otto berman otto berman was already unconscious but schultz was drifting in and out of lucidity for the next day the EMTs did not have any painkillers with them, so they gave him brandy. Well, the, Of course they did. Yeah, because, you know, 1935, I guess. Yeah. Here, just have a little sip of brandy.
0: Well, know. because, honestly, what would have been the painkillers before then? It probably, it probably would have been, like, a fucking handkerchief full of ether or some <laughs> yeah.
1: shit. Here, had some laudanum.
0: Right. <laughs> right.
1: Or here, have a shot of cocaine.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Um, but, yeah, so they gave him some brandy, and the police tried to interrogate him to find out what happened, but Schultz wasn't talking. And it sounds like it wasn't even making sense.
0: okay.
1: Landau and Rosencrantz, the most seriously injured, they're they're awake and lucid at the hospital, but they won't say anything to the police because they were waiting to hear from Dutch if they could talk to the cops. Yep. So Otto Berman died first at 2.20 a.m. Uh, he was the accountant. Abe Landau followed. He bled out, essentially, because shot through the carotid artery. He died at 6 a.m. I'm actually amazed that he lasted that long. No joke. Lulu Rosencrantz actually survived for 29 days, oh. which the doctors were amazed by because the extent of his injuries, he should have been dead immediately
2: yeah
1: Dutch Schultz I think I'm not sure how many times he was shot I saw like I've seen some conflicting things on this that he was shot three times I saw on one site I saw that he was only shot once on one Mm. site so I don't know I I do kind of like this so Dutch Schultz again Jewish 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 fellow Mm -hmm. uh calls a priest Gets baptized and gets last rites right before going into surgery. Just covering all the bases. Right.
0: Just like that's going to be the, like, like, like that's going to help.
1: Yeah.
0: I fucking gonorrhea at somebody's face, but there we go. But you're good. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So he lasted about a day and then he died of. Perit- peritonitis
2: mm, mm-hmm. and
1: so peritonitis if you guys don't know just real briefly it's an inflammation of the peritoneum which is the lining of the inner wall that covers the abdomen and all of the abdominal organs yep so i think it's just infection essentially but for that day that he was alive he was talking and rambling and so this is where the last words of dutch schultz come in and this is where it gets weird
0: Oh, this is where it gets weird. This is where okay. it
1: gets weird, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so his last words were this kind of famous stream of consciousness rant that were captured by a police stenographer. Um, didn't give anything useful to the police. Mm. They cover a period from about 4 p.m. on October 24th, so it's the the um, day after he was shot mm-hmm. until he died later that night. He had a bullet in his stomach still and a 106-degree fever. Um, so that'll do it. So most of the interrogation was done by a guy named Sergeant Conlon. So I have a printout here of his last words. It's nine pages long. I'm not going to read the whole thing.
0: (laughs) Okay. I was like, okay, hold up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because you guys will tune the fuck out. But I'm going to read a couple of the more famous passages. Okay. Uh, At one point, I guess Dutch was shouting. So Sergeant Conlon says, don't holler. He says, I don't want to holler. He says, well, what did they shoot you for? I don't know, sir. Honestly, I don't. I don't even know who's with me, honestly. I was in the toilet, and then I reached the, the boy came at me. The big fellow gave it to you? Yes, he gave it to me. Do you know who this big fellow was? No. If he wanted to break the ring, no. Please, I get a month. They did it. Come on. And then he mumbles a name that wasn't clear, says, cut me off, and says, you're not to be the beneficiary of this will. Is that right? I'll be checked and double-checked, and please pull for me. Will you pull? How many good ones and how many bad ones? Please, add had nothing with him. He was a cowboy in one of the, the seven-days-a-week fight. No business, no hangout, no friends, nothing. Just what you pick up and what you need. I don't know who shot me. Don't put anywhere near this check you might have. Please do it for me. Let me get up, huh? In the olden days, they waited and they waited. Please give me a shot. Is from the factory. Sure, that is bad. Well, oh, go ahead and that happens for trying.
0: What?
1: Yeah. Now this is the most, I'm just going to read one more chunk of it. This is the okay. most famous part. Okay. Uh, he's, he starts going off and just, uh, sounds like he was just shouting. He says, communistic, strike, baloney. Honestly, this is a habit I get. Sometimes I give it and sometimes I don't. Oh, I'm all in. That settles it. Are you sure? Please let me get in and eat. Let him harass himself to you and then bother you. Please don't ask me to go there. I don't want to. I still don't want him in the path. It is no use to stage a riot. The sidewalk was in trouble and the bears were in trouble and I broke it up. Please put me in that room. Please keep him in control. My guilt-edged stuff and those dirty rats have tuned in. Please, mother, don't tear. Don't rip. That is something that shouldn't be spoken about. Please get me up, my friends. Please look out. The shooting is a bit wild, and that kind of shooting saved a man's life. No payrolls, no wells, no coupons. That would be entirely out. Pardon me. I forgot I'm a plaintiff and not a defendant. Look out. Look out for him, please. He owed me money. He owes everyone money. Why can't he just pull out and give me control? Please, mother, you pick me up now. Please, you know me. No, don't you scare me. My friends and I think I do a better job. Police are looking for you all over. Be instrumental in letting us know. They're Englishmen and they're a type. I don't know who is best. They are us. Oh, sir, get the doll a roofing. You can play jacks and girls do that with a softball and do tricks with it. I take all events into consideration. No, no, and it is no. It is confused and it says no. A boy has never wept nor dashed a thousand Kim, Did you hear me? So that's just like wow. one big chunk. And then his last, sort of the last thing he says is something about like canned bean soup or something. Oh,
0: God. Like, uh.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just this crazy. And when you read the whole transcript, it just goes on and on. And it's always punctuated by the cops being like, "Uh huh, uh huh." Anyway, who shot you? Who shot you?
0: <laughs> yeah. I just like that the cops like don't holler. Yeah. Like he's fucking dying, bruh. Like yeah, he's got a
1: bullet in his stomach. I think
0: he he's got a call. bullet in his stomach. He's got a hundred and six degree fever, and he's like, "Civility, please." <laughs>
1: what a dick. <laughs> yeah. So that's the last words of Dutch Schultz. Now the words themselves obviously mean nothing, but they've kind of lived in infamy
2: mm-hmm. and have
1: become the basis. Now I had thought, and I think I was wrong about this. I thought they were the basis for some genuine real life conspiracy theories, but when mm. I was reading up on it, I couldn't find anything. Okay. Uh, except for some fictional conspiracy theories,
2: mm,
1: but he gets okay. more like it got the, the whole thing got kind of adopted by pop culture.
0: Uh-huh. okay
1: specifically by some of the beat poets
0: Ooh. they oh, yeah. loved that it seems right up their fucking
1: alley yeah and really i'm
0: sorry i don't know why i'm salty had... about
1: the beats there for...
0: <laughs> i don't know why i had so much disdain
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. fucking beat poets <sighs> yeah no, they love this shit Specifically William S. Burroughs. So if anyone knows anything about William S. Burroughs, famous, probably the weirdest of the beats.
2: Okay.
1: Uh he wrote the book, probably most famous for naked lunch. Also famous heroin addict. Lived until he was real old. I mean, lived into the nineties because he was doing voiceover for like heavy metal bands and stuff in the (laughs) (laughs) nineties. Yeah. Um, also like straight up murdered his wife in Mexico. Was trying to shoot an apple off the top of her head and just I think so yeah william S Burrows. i mean he's he's a, also a subject for a podcast at some point yeah
0: sounds like
1: um well he wrote a novel in quote screenplay form called the last words of dutch schultz
2: mm-hmm.
1: it came out in 1970 so here's this i just took this from wikipedia because i've and i've actually tried to read it and it is like because you take this like random ranting from dutch schultz and then add william s burroughs craziness into it it's yeah. like incomprehensible to me like William S. Burroughs was real famous for what was called the cut up technique Mm
2: -hmm. where he would just
1: cut up words and put them in random orders and stuff um okay yeah <laughs> that's kind of how i feel about it but so this is what wikipedia had to say it says despite the title very little of the screenplay deals with schultz's cryptic words although burroughs specifies that a recording of schultz's dying words should be playing throughout the film is the soundtrack virtually nothing which is actually depicted on screen has anything to do with the real schultz's dying monologue burroughs creates his own dying words for schultz to actually speak and which reflect Burroughs' narrative. Occasionally, these made-up snippets of speech include Schultz's actual words. Similarly, large segments of the story are told from a third-person perspective, as opposed to being from, told from Schultz's perspective. The screenplay is made up of a series of loosely connected vignettes in roughly chronolo- chronological order. It begins from the point of view of a dying Dutch Schultz looking up at two police detectives. He has a brief flashback to his own shooting. From there, the movie makes a transition to Schultz's memories of childhood, and then blah, 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 blah. Like I said, I've tried to read it and, like, give up after three pages, which is also what happened when I tried to read Naked Lunch. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not. I'm either not Mm-mm. smart enough or not doing enough drugs to read this stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: yeah, okay. That, that I feel like that tracks from what you've yeah. just said.
1: <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is that there have been attempts to actually take this because it was written in a screenplay format mm-hmm. and actually adapted into a movie. So for a, a while there, Dennis Hopper actually had the rights to it. Okay. He wanted to make it as a follow up to Easy Rider, and then he had a movie called The Last Movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was never able to get that off the ground. Okay. Eventually, finally, in 2002, there's an animated Dutch short film that was made that's basically an abridged version of Burroughs' screenplay.
2: Okay.
1: Um, and they actually got, I kind of want to see this just for this reason. It says they got Rutger Hauer to play the voice of Dutch Schultz. Who's that? Uh, you would recommend. He's in Blade Runner. He's in a movie called okay. The Hitcher. Yeah.
0: Okay. I think I know who you're talking. He's about. He's actually
1: in the movie of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He plays like the King Vampire in the Christy Swanson movie. <laughs> I think.
0: I think I'm remembering. <laughs> yeah,
1: he's like kind of famous, like tough guy sort of. Yeah. Actor. I think he. I I could be wrong about this. I think he just recently died actually, um, within the last year or two. Now this is where I think I got the. It, it was the source of conspiracy theories, but I think this was wrong. It was a major plot point in a book called the Illuminatus Trilogy from 1975 by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. Now the Illuminatus Trilogy is actually one of my favorite books. This is probably where I first encountered the whole idea of Dutch Schultz is this kind of character Mm -hmm. um it's if anyone has never read the illuminatus trilogy it it basically it's it's a sort of psychedelic sci-fi novel slash trilogy of novels but they're kind of released as one volume Mm -hmm. that basically ties every single conspiracy theory you can imagine together so it's like the assassination of john kennedy the sinking of atlantis what the fuck With like Cthulhu, Cthulhu, Lovecraftian horror. And there's a whole thing about John Dillinger still being alive and the last words of Dutch Schultz, which are interpreted to be this occultic code that sort of delivers the mysteries of the universe. It's a great book. It's a crazy, like, it's not necessarily an easy book to read. It's actually really funny. It's kind of written as like a black comedy, Mm -hmm. but a crazy, crazy fucking book. There was also an author named Dwight McDonald. Uh, He took, dutch's last words and then sort of crafted them into a parody of gertrude stein's writing style which i'm like that's rude that's rude, <laughs> that's rude eh? and then i mentioned the book uh book and movie billy bathgate mm-hmm. which was written by a guy named e.l doctorow and it's mm-hmm. basically about a uh, dutch schultz but from the perspective of like an underling in his organization okay and in the novel the character billy bathgate uh realizes that uh, Dutch's last words actually have clues to where he hid his money.
2: Ooh, okay. That's so interesting. He
1: so I just think it's interesting how this guy's dying words got really kind of like pulled into this crazy, almost like avant-garde pop culture.
2: Yeah. Like art. Yeah.
1: Thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, probably because they were like fucking nine pages long as opposed to like a mm-hmm. couple of sentences.
1: Yeah, well, it is. And it is this just crazy stream of consciousness thing. So here's a quote from a guy named Darren Anderson. It's from an article in a 3AM magazine. And he's just kind of talking about the impact of Dutch's last words.
2: Okay.
1: He says, to edit Schultz's monologue is to misrepresent it. It's the very free-flowing nature of his babblings that provides the impact. Here's the human mind cut adrift from reason. On the brink of expiration, his speech turns both haunting and mundane, both feral and humdrum. There's a certain outsider art style fascination with it. The voyeur's pleasure that we all get upon hearing people's last words as if they give us some great insight into the void and as Mm -hmm. if they reaffirm to us our very condition of being alive, however temporary that may be. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, there's no audio recording, just a dictation on paper which inevitably loses some of the tone of his sentiments. Maybe there's nothing to learn about dying from Schultz's last words, no enlightening pearls of wisdom to impart. It's certainly no Tibetan book of the dead. To seek some kind of truth in everything, however, is an unfortunate consequence of the age of materialism.
2: Hmm.
1: Instead, this is art for art's sake, and the heart gouging, eye defiling mobster is the unlikeliest of dandies. Reading the transcript, <laughs> you're firstly struck with its antecedents in literature, however illusory. You sense in his words the Dadaists and the surrealist offspring with their cult of the unconscious and the accidental employing all those Freudian methods from slips of the tongue to dream interpretation, all those melting clocks and ghostly mannequins. There's Antonid Artaud tapping into the Holocaust in collaboration as guilt, like it's the national grid, emblazing and shrieking like some unhinged desert prophet before an assembly of well-dressed Parisian dignitaries. And where else would you encounter a dying mobster ranting about French-Canadian pea soup than, the, than in the novels of Richard Brodingen? schultz probably never read a book he more than likely thought writers were all cunts but that's the strength of schultz's last words they have side effects he never intended and that is the story of the last words of dutch schultz
0: what a weird fucking story yeah (laughs) wow that's fascinating yeah Cool. Okay. I am going to tell you about Stephanie St. Clair, the matriarch gangster of Harlem and the patron saint of Fuck Around and Find Out.
2: Yes.
0: Uh, So, information for this story comes from The Root. So, The Root is a website that does all articles about Black culture, Black history, Mm -hmm. Black you know, being Black in the U.S. and the world, everything. It's a very cool uh, mm-hmm. website. During Black History Month, they do all of these articles having to do with Black history. And I don't remember when this article is from, but whenever it is from, during that Black History Month, they decided to do a week-long series called Rebels of Black History. So nice. they were talking about, you know, like troublemakers. And, and I mean that like uh, a little bit of the best possible way, mm-hmm. but people who really like weren't playing by the rules and had been largely forgotten by history. Uh, yeah. Wikipedia, of course, Market watch, which will make a little <laughs> bit of sense when when I get further into this. Okay. the mobmuseum.org and blackpast.org. Cool. So our story begins in Harlem during the 1900s. Harlem is was and still is a neighborhood in the northern section of Manhattan.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: man, the island of Manhattan was originally the land of the Manhattan and Lenape people. It was settled by the Dutch in the 1630s. No. Chronologically, Harlem has been a farming village, a Revolutionary War battlefield. George Washington actually won his first American battle in Harlem. Oh, wow yeah so it's got a long history
1: yeah um Man, I know like the name Harlem I believe is Dutch.
0: It's Dutch, yeah. yeah I feel like I saw I feel like I saw what it meant, but I didn't write it down. Yeah. the story about the Dutch um, <laughs>
1: <so>. <laughs> whatever the Dutch
0: whatever Dutch Dutch folk. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm tired. I was about to spin off on a yarn there. Okay, so a Revolutionary War battlefield, a resort town where Manhattan folks would go, rich folks would like go to get out of town post, mm. this was post-American revolution. A commuter town, a ghetto for various ethnic groups, including Irish, Italian, Jewish, and Black communities, mm-hmm. uh, and a center for Black American culture. If anybody mm. is a fan of the, uh, the musical Hamilton, there is a number where he's talking about it being quiet at uptown that they he moves to he moves uptown after the death of his son and he works in the garden and all that stuff that is i believe taking place at hamilton grange which is located Mm -hmm. in harlem Mm -hmm. so the black population in harlem exploded during the great migration which was when uh black folk decided to leave the south because obviously and move up
1: north this is post-civil war right
0: yeah but my understanding of this, and if you know anything about this, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of it is that it wasn't directly after the Civil War. Um,
1: yeah, I think it was kind of post-Reconstruction.
0: Reconstruction. I was like, rest, re- that's not it. Yeah. And then I was like, that's definitely Definitely not, not it. it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that it was, you know, that that was happening, and and I think I think I've seen stuff that, like, you know, formerly enslaved people were trying to sort of make a go of it in the South, and obviously it was just god awful because it was the South. um mm-hmm. If if you are a, a southerner and that makes you grumpy, uh please turn to your history books.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know what else. To I mean, you. I'll avoid my like, come at me, motherfucker, again. But, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, this whole episode is just, it's just a lot of gauntlets. So Harlem also has a long and varied history, and it is a rabbit hole in and of itself that is mm. definitely worth falling down. The The Wikipedia article alone on Harlem splinters into a whole bunch of different articles. The, the history of Harlem, which is not the page about Harlem, like you can find Harlem on Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. and then there's a separate link to the history of Harlem, that page in and of itself is uh, a good long meaty read yeah. i will talk a little bit trigger warning for anybody i will talk a little bit about sexual assault i will not go into any details but there is mention of it in this story mm. uh, so if that bothers you no no shame in that i just want to let you know okay now onto the main course stephanie st claire also known as queenie madame queen madame st claire and queen of the policy rackets mm. st claire was born in the french west indies sources can't, of course, because she is one a woman into a black woman, there's like one book that has been mm-hmm. written about her everything else is sort of like eh, this is kind of what we can cobble together Sort of a lot of guesswork um, yeah so sources can't quite nail the exact location of her birth some people say it was Martinique others say Guadeloupe. but she was the child of a single mother who worked very very hard to make sure that St. Clair could go to school when she was 15 years old St. Clair's mother got very sick and she had to St. Clair had to leave school and she was sent to go work for a rich i typed this last night when i was quite tired and i meant to say rich family but instead it says rich daily um uh, uh,
2: yeah
0: oh <laughs> uh, yeah yeah uh, so she went to she was sent to go work for a rich family as a maid the son of this rich family was a complete dick and would repeatedly um assault saint Clair mm. during her time there she was finally able to save enough money to get the hell out of there. And, and after her mother died, she was like, fuck this, fuck this place, I'm out. And she moved to France. Dates, again, for her entire life are contradicted everywhere. So some sources say that she moved to France in 1912 and then moved to New York City in 1911. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. <laughs> math, guys.
0: Math, guys. At any rate, she arrives in New York City aboard the Guiana. Which is a ship uh, that had left, I think, Marseille, Marseille. Marseille. Legend goes that she used the long voyage and her quarantine after arriving in New York City to learn English. Mm. Um, so she is she can speak English and French at this point. She could also read and write, which mm. made her like super rare. Yeah. Yeah. So she gets to New York. She begins to na- uh, um, She begins to date a guy named Duke who tried to force St. Clair into sex work. He's one of the first of many who fucked around and found out because
2: she <laughs>
0: stabbed that son of a bitch in the eye with a fork. Nice. Yeah. So again, she's like, fuck this place. She hops on a bus to get out of New York City. In... Just, I was going to say like a cruel twist of fate, but I can't, I can't quite say that it's a twist of fate. The bus gets stopped by the clan. Mm. There are varying stories about what happens on that bus, but a lot of sources say that she again is assaulted on this bus yeah <sighs> so she's like okay you know what i guess fi- fine i'll go back to new york so she goes back to new york she finds out that duke's been shot and killed in a fight with a rival gang he did not die from the fork in the eye <laughs> <laughs> she was probably like hmm. so at this point st claire is like okay i've got to like she she knows that she needs to do something to start taking care of herself so she starts a small drug running business it said controlled substances scotty what do you know what the differences between controlled and uncontrolled substances
1: i i don't know like i don't okay. i don't know what makes something like a controlled substance versus like an illicit narcotic versus
0: I, yeah that's what i'm like is that is like is it like morphine and oxy versus yeah. coke well, and,
1: and then like what would have what what would they have called a controlled substance back then you know
0: yeah i don't know at any rate she starts to dabble in the controlled drug running business and she's she's selling drugs with her new boyfriend Okay. So after a couple of months of this, St. Clair, okay, again, after a couple of months of this, St. Clair made $30,000. That is the modern day equivalent of nearly three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. In three months. Yeah. She was good at her job. She was good at her job, man. (laughs) and and it it is something that like that that trend will continue through her life Mm -hmm. so she's made herself a nice chunk of change she tells her boyfriend that she wants to go you know go go it alone he's like yeah no way absolutely not and he tries to strangle saint Mm Clair. fight ensues and he is the second man to fuck around and find out and she shoves him with such force that when he falls he hits his head on a table and he dies
1: yeah i'm sorry sounds about right (laughs)
0: I... I I do gleefully take joy in, in abusers getting you know what's coming to them. Yeah. So he dies and she's like, all right, well, I'm free to go start my business. So she does. <laughs> she employs her own men. She bribes the cop. And then she ends up actually investing $10,000 of her own money in policy banking, which is also known as the numbers game. So mm-hmm. this is a bit of a confusing topic. Uh, I'm going to try to give you a bit of a cliff's note version of it. Policy banking slash numbers game slash numbers racket slash daily number is an illegal lottery played mostly in poor working class neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But like what is it? It this particular one is a basic lottery betting game where you would pick three digits to match the three numbers that will be pulled randomly the next day. Mm-hmm. Betters would then place their bets with a bookie at a tavern or a shop or a club whatever, runners would then carry the money and the betting slips between the betting parlors and the headquarters known as the numbers bank. With the exception of the bookies and that kind of aspect of it, it really sounds a lot like playing a regular old lottery. Yeah. Yeah. So part of this is that it was like all of this stuff, policy banking, the numbers, all of that stuff worked as like lottery betting, kind of like community bank, investment, lender Mm -hmm. type of stuff for people who couldn't at this time get into legit banks. So it's a mix of gambling, playing the lotto, and investing. It was really, really popular in Black, Italian, Jewish, and Irish communities. There is a variation of it called bolitas, which from what I could understand sounds almost exactly like modern day Powerball. Yeah, it was numbers written on balls and they would pick them out. There is a, the Wikipedia article about that is super cool. It talks about all the ways that people would cheat. (laughs) Like they would, the numbers that were going to win that night. uh, You like if if somebody decided to rig the game, the numbers that they wanted the person to pull from the sack where all the balls were, they would put them in the fridge. So they were cold to the touch. So they knew Mm. to pick those ones out. That's clever.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was gonna say, like, when you're talking about, like, all oh, these numbers pulled randomly, I'm like, like, how random was this, really?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're yeah. not we're not necessarily dealing. Not everybody who's involved in this is on the is on the up and up. Yeah. Uh, so bolitas was very popular in Cuba and subsequently in Florida after the Cuban Revolution. Mm. Let's quickly dive into white supremacy and investing, shall we? Yeah. So the numbers game was technically illegal, but banks at that time wouldn't accept Black customers, so they had no avenue to legally invest their wealth. Additionally, there were active attacks on Black wealth and abundance, like the Tulsa and Memphis race massacres. There are plenty of podcasts and YouTube videos and all documentaries where you can go and find out about the Tulsa race massacre. And I'm sure also the, I know more about Tulsa than I do yeah, about Memphis me too. and Memphis, I think happened in like the eight late 1800s. Tulsa was in the early 19, like 19. 19- yeah. And I,
1: I think didn't, this might've come up on the show before hmm. or on the podcast before, but we mentioned the, I, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast or just, we talked about it in like life. But the idea that, like, the Tulsa Race Massacre was not something I ever learned about in school. No. Not part of the history curriculum. No. But when you actually learn the story, it is fucking horrifying.
0: Uh, It's awful. It is. And it's, (laughs) I mean, you know, if you're kind of talking about this fucking bullshit America First ideal, it's clear why that isn't taught. Mm-hmm. In because there, I mean, there's n- there, like there, there is there is no way to excuse what happened. I'm again, I'm sure I I know significantly less about the Memphis race massacre, but Tulsa, you know, there's some trumped up story about you know a fucking a guy you know, in a an elevator, kid, yeah, whistling it. Some I don't know some bullshit like that. Which okay, I'm about to go off on a tear here. I yeah. like I. And I am disgusted in the way that like at that time, and I'm sure probably still happens now, white men wanna try to act like white women are these like delicate flowers. And, and they will commit atrocities and m- murder black people in the name of disrespecting white women when the biggest perpetrators of disrespect to white women are white men. And if anybody mm-hmm. wants to come at me about that, I will fucking nail you with statistics. We can talk yeah. about intimate partner violence. We can talk about the statistics on things like rape. So, like, it, it just is... Like I, I like I said, I'm just disgusted and it, that and they wanted to try to use this protection of virtuous white women as the as the reasons yeah. for them to fucking commit atrocities.
1: Well, yeah, because I mean, because they're t-
0: racist fucks.
1: Yeah, because what was really going on in Tulsa was you had this incredibly successful upper middle class black community. I mean, they yes. called it Black Wall Street. Yes. Um, and the white folks didn't like that, and so they used this kind of trumped up. Yeah, a guy like whistles at someone in an elevator. I don't remember what the Trump story was, but it was pretty clearly yeah. bullshit. And then, you know, like sometimes you'll hear about this story is it'll be called the Tulsa Race Riot. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a fucking riot. It was no. white people systematically went in and burned out a community with like airplanes and incendiary yes. bombs and shit. Like yes. This was not a riot. Like this wasn't no. Watts. This wasn't the L.A. riots. This was <laughs> a fucking massacre.
0: Right. And then that's, you know, my my use of that language there is very specific because mm-hmm. it is frequently referred to as the Tulsa Race Riot. It is it was not a riot, it was a massacre. So there's that. So yeah, so there were these active attacks on 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 black wealth and abundance and these active and impenetrable barriers that were put up are the reason why there is a lack of generational wealth within the black community today Mm -hmm. um like that all of these things prevented the black community from gaining access to the the middle class let alone upper middle class like echelon right So Stephanie St. Clair starts running the numbers game. And since it's the only way for black folks in Harlem to invest their money, she actually uses this underground economy to address race politics.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So obviously the numbers game just, I mean, kind of just like every other fucking thing out there was male dominated. And that makes St. Clair one of the only women in the game. When you look up anything having to do with policy banking numbers racket all of that stuff her name i believe is the only female name that you
1: find yeah i'm not surprised
0: yeah Yeah. so yeah she was she she was not fucking around so she is such a boss she's so successful that she earns the nickname queenie throughout manhattan but -hmm. folks in harlem call her madame saint Clair. she routinely makes over twenty thousand dollars a year
1: which again like converts to like millions.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's just killing it. So, as I think is pretty clear, she was not to be fucked with in any Mm -hmm. fashion. She would put ads in the newspapers telling the people of Harlem what their legal rights were, advocating for voting rights, calling out police brutality. Yeah. I can only imagine what police brutality was like in Harlem during Mm -hmm. this time. And St. Clair was known to put the ads in the paper accusing cops of corruption after trying to file complaints through the proper channels so she you like you know police would come down there fuck people up commit these acts of police brutality yeah. stephanie c claire would be like hey that's not okay and she would try to go through the proper channels but she would get dismissed so she again was like take "Fuck around and, and yeah fuck around and find out and would take out an ad in the paper mm-hmm. obviously so whereas
1: like dutch schultz was like hey i'm robin hood up in this town in new york it's like she's actually <laughs> kind of fucking doing it
0: Yeah. And she's, and she's, the thing about what it seems like she was doing is that she was, she was providing education to empower people rather than just being like, here's some handouts and here's some free stuff. Yeah. So (laughs) obviously these ads in the newspaper calling out the cops probably don't go over yeah, real like, well
1: go like a lead balloon basically.
0: yeah so they make up some charges and they arrest her and they send her to a workhouse prison for somewhere between eight to ten months again different sources to say different things mm-hmm. well that gives her enough time to come up with a way to fuck over the police real bad (laughs) like real bad so when she gets out I like and I just imagine I'm sure this isn't it but I imagine that she like gets out of the workhouse and she's like okay and she goes she testifies in front of the Seabury Commission the Seabury Commission was a legislative committee formed by New York State Legislature for uh, in the name of you know FDR to check into corruption in New York City specifically corruption in the courts and the police department Mm -hmm. so she Gets out, she goes to testify in front of the Seabury Commission. Seabury Commission. She basically throws herself on a sword and testifies that she has paid off cops (laughs)
1: like
0: a lot of them. Yeah. So her testimony- Is she like naming
1: names and shit
0: too? She's naming names. She's like, uh, I paid off this fucker. I paid off this fucker. <laughs> I paid off this dude last week. She names names. Her she's testimony- She's like burn it
1: all to the ground. She,
0: yeah, she's just, <laughs> I mean, she just is out of fucks to give. So her testimony results in the firing of at least a dozen officers. Nice. Again, the little literal definition of fuck around and find out. Yeah. The mafia decides to fuck around. <laughs> so, around this time, prohibition is wrapping up and the Jewish and Italian crime families start to see their profits dipping. So, mm-hmm. they're like, well, why don't we move into Harlem and we'll start, you know, making some money there? Yeah. Bad move. Dutch Schultz is the first to move in, and his (laughs) greeting to the neighborhood is beating and killing numbers operators who won't pay him for protection.
1: Yeah, sounds about right. Mm -hmm.
0: This obviously does not sit well with St. Clair, so she and her main enforcer, a guy by the name of Bumpy Johnson, decide that they won't be paying Schultz
1: anything i've heard of bumpy johnson mm-hmm. it's interesting that i've heard of him but not her but.
0: right yeah uh, and to be clear again these people were paying for protection from the police it,
2: Yeah.
0: it dear lord do your jobs um <laughs> so so saint Clara is like you know she's like no nah, we're good like we're not gonna pay for anything even though she is directly facing violence and intimidation from the police
2: mm-hmm.
0: not only that but she goes around and she actually fucks up the storefronts that ran schultz's bedding operations and then she and then she goes to the police and she's like yo schultz is in here fucking around when schultz so schultz obviously does not like this so yeah. he sends somebody to intimidate her saint claire pushes the dude into a closet locks him in there and calls four bodyguards to take care of him <laughs> and like that was it that was the end of the story
1: the end of that guy
0: Yeah. So she hollers to the police and she's like, yo, Schultz is over here trying to do this stuff. The police are like, okay, fine. We'll go check it out. They go, they head over to his house. They raid it. They arrest a bunch of his employees and they seize $12 million worth of, I think it was actually money. So I shouldn't say worth. They seize $12 million Mm. Um, just because I love a, a, mm, I love a modern day money conversion. That is Roughly one hundred and seventy-two million dollars in today's money.
1: So, like half of a Marvel movie budget.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, precisely. Saint Clair then goes and brags about it in the papers. Just, I mean, just did not care. She never gave in to Schultz. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. She did go legit though in order to stay away from the police. So she passed off her business to Bumpy who actually ended up negotiating with Lucky Luciano who had taken over Schultz's business with a percentage going
1: to Bumpy. Okay, this is how I know Bumpy Johnson because of the Lucky Luciano
0: connection. Yeah. Okay. So that meant whenever the Italians had any problems in Harlem, they had to go to Bumpy
1: first. Yeah. 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 Okay, that okay. I know yeah, I've heard that.
0: Okay, this is the reason why I wanted to do this. I wanted to do my story after Scotty's because it wouldn't have been as much fun to tell the story before you had all the all really? the, the like setup.
1: How fucking shitty Dutch Schultz actually was.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so because of like mob reasons, like you said, the commission put the hit out on Schultz and they shoot him up. And as he's mm. laying in the hospital dying, St. <laughs> Clair gets word about this and she sends this motherfucker a telegram that says only... As ye sow, so shall ye reap. <laughs> that's it. Like she like got and word, and she was like, "Hold up." he's like, "Canadian
1: pea soup."
0: <laughs> <Whoa>.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and she was like, "Good, yeah, yeah." And that's so. That's actually what I first found out about her. I had sort of, uh, you know, you were kind of going, you were going the Dutch Schultz route, and I was like, "Well, maybe there's like a female mobster." And she ended up being the first one that I found out about, like you know sort of just doing a quick cursory google search i think it was like the 10 most famous female mobsters and the first was bonnie from bonnie and klein mm-hmm. and then stephanie st Clair was next and she is famous because for a, a big reason of why she is so famous is because she sent this this scathing deathbed telegram to schultz as he was <laughs> dying. yeah, talking about <laughs> canadian pea soup Okay. So since she's gone legit at this point and she needs something to do, she turns her attention fully towards political reform. Mm -hmm. She meets and marries a man by the name of Sufi Abdul Hamid. He was a militant activist leader of an Islamic Buddhist cult and a raging Mm -hmm. anti-Semite. I like, I feel, I feel weird about saying this, but enough, sources said it that i guess i'm gonna go ahead and repeat it but he was frequently referred to as black hitler
1: oh i yeah. think i've heard of him too yeah yeah
0: they weren't married for very long because pretty quickly hamid starts cheating on saint Clair with a fortune teller
1: hmm As you do (laughs) Uh,
0: This is a thing where I'm like You've got Stephanie St. Clair And she is a sight to behold Like, you know, obviously we'll post pictures of her On social media and stuff for this episode like and she's stabbed a dude in the eye, she's yeah. killed another dude, she like everything about her is like do not mess. And he's like, but you know what? I'm gonna go with the fortune teller. <laughs> so Hamid and the fortune teller try to open a business with St. Clair's money, which Ooh, yeah. yeah, I mean, just no way that's gonna go over well. Mm. Like it's just gonna be bad news. Hamid and St. Clair's marriage officially ends when during an argument, St. Clair shoots. Hamid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was arrested and imprisoned for attempted murder to these charges she's alleged to have replied if i wanted him dead he would be dead <laughs> mm-hmm. she got sent to uh to prison for 10 years for that and when she got out she sort of spent the rest of her days living this this quiet um and like honestly, wealthy life. She advocated for civil liberties in her community. She would write newspaper columns about discrimination and police brutality, illegal searches, etc. In 1969, a year after Bumpy Johnson had passed away, this is, I don't know why, this just is like, just makes me like, oh, a little bit. So Bumpy Johnson had become like the reigning king in harlem and in his old in his old age he returned to live with saint Clair and write poetry
1: oh (laughs) yeah that's it's just so (laughs) that's like oddly adorable
0: i know it's like fucking (laughs) after the fucking
1: knife in the eye or (laughs) or whatever like
0: It's like, it's like W and his paintings. You know what I mean? Where you're just like, oh man. Yeah. So in
1: 1969,
0: she passed peacefully and quietly a fucking boss till the very end. And mm-hmm. that is the story of Stephanie St. Clair.
1: I love the fucking telegram to Dutch Schultz. Because like, <laughs> I mean, I got to say like, you know, and again, like, you know, as you know, I have this fascination with Jewish gangsters. Um Yeah because i'm a jew right but then when you read about most of these guys they're just like all gangsters they're just assholes you know (laughs) like and so there's like nothing about dutch schultz that i can be like well that that's a guy i want to emulate right right (laughs) but like yeah i love that she was just like yeah fuck this guy
0: yeah and it's i mean it really just like it you know, that's why I kept saying that that she's, you know, sort of a patron saint of fuck around and find out because she just didn't take it from anybody. Mm-hmm. And
1: I and, mean to to go after the cops the way she did, publicly. Yeah. In yeah. what was this like the 30s, 20s, yeah. and 30s? Like, yeah, that's some fucking. Holiday. Yeah,
0: and I think it's it's. I mean, you know, again, this isn't trying to be like gangster worship or or or, or like anything like that. I mean, but- she
1: did marry a raging anti-Semite, so we need to.
0: Right, <laughs> um, but I think it, there is something I don't want to say admirable, but at least just you know, like I have to give I have to give some some props there for the fact that she was because there's no way she was like she testified that she was like, hey, I've been paying I've I've mm-hmm. I've been paying off cops so that I can do illegal shit. Like there's no way she got out of that unscathed. But mm-hmm. the 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 sort of self sacrifice that it takes to be like. I have to do this in order to save my community. Like she didn't, she was not the main beneficiary of that. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe the methods are not completely respectable, but I do have to, I do have to respect that she was so committed to her community that she was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to send these dirty cops away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah And I mean, yeah, just the utter fearlessness of that. Mm-hmm. Is, like pretty astonishing. Yeah. Well, wow, that's yeah. a good story. I'd never heard of her before. I'd heard of Bumpy Johnson, but yep, never heard of her. Yeah, you have uh, to read more.
0: Yeah, I mean, and again, like not surprising. Yeah, uh, they're they're not. Is- a- They're not a ton. I was going to say they're not a ton of female mobsters, gangsters type of -hmm. of thing. Um, Another fun Wikipedia rabbit hole to fall down into is the like organized crime because it breaks everything. There's a whole graph in there. I'm sorry. It's not a graph. It's a table in there that is sort of like breaks it down by time period and then breaks it down by region and then breaks it down as to whether or not those crime families are inactive or, still active
1: Mm -hmm. a lot of yeah a lot of them are inactive (laughs)
0: because a lot of them are inactive even mm -hmm. like the cartels and stuff Mm -hmm. a lot of them are inactive
1: yeah well these you know these organizations like i mean you're you're living by uh there's a
0: shelf life there it's got a shelf life
1: exactly yeah and and like it's and yeah the whole idea of the female gangster it seems like when you hear most stories of like oh female criminal they're always like ancillary in some way to men like you know bonnie you know well it's, you don't have bonnie without clyde you know there's ma barker but she was ma barker she was had her sons you know yeah, yeah. so to have someone like her who's like no she was just doing the shit on her own i mean the other one i think of and i'm forgetting her name now but in the cooking cowboys documentary uh, she was like the miami drug drug mm. I would wanted to say kingpin but I wouldn't should be a queenpin should be a queenpin um yeah and she was more in the dutch schultz range of just like a terrible (laughs) terrible murderous human being right i mean she was she was doing it on her own like she
0: yeah and i feel like there are stories i could be completely wrong i could just be making this up but i feel like there are there are stories of women in the latin american cartels it's the kind of thing where like their husbands were like kingpins Mm -hmm. and then a little bit like a fucking Catherine zeta jones's storyline in traffic where it's like something happens to their husbands and and they're like okay well now i have to take up
1: the mantle mm. for this well, actually i think I, I could be wrong about this i think the Catherine zeta jones character is somewhat based on this i can't i'm totally blanking her name she was a Colombian drug lord in mm. miami
2: mm-hmm.
1: um if you watch the uh, anyone who's seen cooking cowboys you know who i'm talking about but i think the Catherine zeta jones character was somewhat like a fictional highly 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 fictionalized version of
0: right story. sort of inspired by that
1: inspired by yeah
0: yeah yeah no and i just i think you know you know she like St. Clair was this woman who, you know, she came to this country with nothing and she
1: built up her empire doing this thing. I mean, someone needs to make a movie about her.
0: Well, and this is the sad thing is that, so she's in, she makes an appearance in the Cotton
2: Club. Okay.
0: I think, and there's another movie that she makes an appearance in as well. And so some of the articles that I was looking at about her, I think maybe the article on The route and perhaps the article in uh, at blackpast.org, both of them, and th- this is from about 2017, I think, stated that HBO was in the works to make a movie about her, but I don't know what happened to it.
1: I mean, it could still be in development, so.
0: It really? Could,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> these, I mean you Sorry. said 2017. <laughs> yes. I mean, these things are I just don't different. know
0: how this stuff works.
1: Oh, yeah. No, if you're talking Hollywood, I mean, these things can be in development for years before they actually yeah. be made. So it could still be coming. That, that's yeah. still fairly recent.
0: I would not mind. I mean, after fucking like Boardwalk Empire and The Sopranos and mm-hmm. fucking even like Game of Thrones and shit, like I would not mind a female-centered. Gangster mm-hmm. story. Yeah, not at
1: all. I would yeah. watch well, that I, the time's kind of ripe for that, so.
0: Yeah, make it. HBO?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like HBO, we know, we know listening they're listening. Yeah, look, we know you're listening. We know you're fucking like trolling through our podcast to find ideas about, about cool shit to do. Yeah, like we're giving the Mongolian
1: death worm. Do <laughs> this one. <laughs> we don't need a movie about the Mongolian death worm. But
0: we no, do. we don't need a movie about the Mongolian death worm. We do. I cannot stress this enough. We do not need yet another movie about dude gangsters.
1: Yeah, we've already had Dutch Alts. We we've already had the Mothman prophecies.
0: Right. <laughs> what is what is the movie? Do you remember this movie? I feel like it had Richard Grieco. I think he was Lucky Luciano. Uh, oh, Patrick God. Dempsey, I think,
1: was Bugsy Siegel. Yeah. What was that movie? Do you remember that movie? It was like called like was it mobsters or gangsters or something? Was it like mobsters?
0: That? How lame.
1: I know it was something like that.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna IMDb that right now. Hold please.
1: I'm totally gonna put that stupid song in again
0: yes please do it because i think it's very funny okay
2: patrick
0: i wish that imdb worked a little bit the way that wikipedia does where it would give you the most obvious
2: mm-hmm.
0: like it would just take you immediately to the most obvious person and then would be like hey if you're looking for like patrick dempsey the producer like disambiguation mm-hmm. Yeah. Click here, but it doesn't. It's like, are you talking about the grip or the actor or the <laughs> producer or the? And I'm like, none of these things. Okay. <laughs> so, bridger Jones's Baby Shade. Baby
2: shoe, it's really
0: cute. Mo- Yep, it's mobsters. Oh, I was wrong. He was Meyer Lansky.
1: Oh, okay. Who the
0: fuck was that? Hold on, I'm gonna see who else was on this this flick. Christian Slater.
1: Yes, I remember that. I remember yes. Christian Slater. He plays... Oh, fuck. Who does he play?
0: Okay, I was utterly wrong about all of this. Okay. Okay, so Christian Slater plays Lucky Luciano. Uh,
1: that's bad casting, though. Okay.
0: Yeah. Costas. Mm, Mandalore. Mm-hmm. Plays Frank Costello. Richard Grieco plays Bugsy Siegel. What? Yeah. Christian- and then Patrick... Christian
1: <laughs> Slater should have played Bugsy Siegel and Richard Grico should have played Lucky Luciano.
0: Yeah, I have to say.
1: Judging this movie right
0: now. Yeah. And then Bugsy was the movie, right? With um, Warren Beatty. Right. And Annette And Annette, Annette Benning yeah. played. She was also one of the top. So Annette Benning played the woman who Bugsy Siegel started the Flamingo Hotel. Mm-hmm. And uh, Annette Benning played the woman who was actually like this woman, bu- uh, I guess Bugsy's. Bugsy, is that who we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Virginia Hill. Mm-hmm. That's her name. Virginia Hill, her her Bugsy's nickname for her was the flamingo, and that's why he like named the hotel after her and blah, 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 blah,
1: blah. Yeah, Bugsy Siegel's an interesting. But actually of the like, so there's the sort of trifecta of the like, I would well, maybe quadrifecta of the mm-hmm. archetypal Jewish gangster.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and It would be Arnold Rothstein. Mm-hmm. Who I mentioned, uh, Dutch Schultz, Bugsy Siegel, and then Meyer Lansky. And to me, actually, as a character, as a person, Meyer Lansky is the most interesting because he was like he was the smart one. Like, interesting. Bugsy Siegel and uh, Dutch Schultz were like these kind of like loose cannons. Yeah. Myron Lansky I mean he lived until like the 1980s and I think like they still don't know how much money he had because he was just living in some little like house in Florida like just this in the neighborhood being just like an old guy in Florida but they think he might have had like stashed like billions of dollars.
0: This is what I'm talking about in terms of what we were you know talking about last week with the Gardner Museum theft like and they fucking do it in Ocean's Eleven like it's idiots who go out and 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 make this much money and blow it all because that's how, you know, I get it. And it also happens mm-hmm. in Goodfellas when they pull off the, the lufthansa, lufthansa heist, heist yeah. right?
1: The guy goes and gets the pink Cadillac and the fur. Yeah, and the furs.
0: Mind. And that's how they all end up dead. And it's that great scene where fucking Layla, like the beautiful instrumental thing yeah. at the end of Layla, is playing. It's just fucking gorgeous. Uh, such a, like, just a great chunk of that movie but that's the thing is that that's how you get caught you draw attention to yourself and it's Mm -hmm. like (laughs) my sweet dad is always talking about you know like when the lotto gets up to like insane numbers is that he's like go and buy a lottery ticket and then what you gotta do is you gotta hire somebody to go you gotta hire a lawyer to go and claim the lottery winnings for you and you have a whole country and then you just quietly live your life in peace Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh that's like yeah
1: that's kind of what Meyer Lansky did and like you know if you think about like what really brought down the mafia like sort of in the 80s and 90s -hmm. what character kind of was like the nail in the coffin it was John Gotti who was like the fucking flashy celebrity like the Donald Trump of gangsters I mean you could say (laughs) Donald Trump is the Donald Trump of gangsters but but John Gotti literally I mean he was like I think head of the Gambinos but like if that guy just had like settled the fuck down yeah. You know, and not yeah. been like showing up in his fucking Bentleys and showing yeah. off basically, you know, yeah. he wouldn't have been a target. Like Meyer Lansky was just under the radar. Like how many people, like everyone's heard of Dutch Schultz. Everyone heard, has heard of Bugsy Siegel. But I'm going to ask like, you know, do a little weirdest thing poll. How many of you people have heard of Meyer Lansky? I'm guessing not that many.
0: Ooh, we can know, do He that. was
1: probably the most powerful Jewish gangster of all time.
0: Well, and, and that's the thing is that like, it's, it's, you know, it is that it is the people who sort of sit in the shadows because they're able to survive the longest because mm-hmm. they're not doing stupid shit. They're keeping their noses clean yeah. and then they're just quietly. And you know, and that's like, if we talk about like generational, right? Because that's the thing, right? Is that generational wealth is actually the real power. Mm-hmm. like money is is actual power right. it's not it's not fame it's not you know like political cloud it's all of that stuff is bought and sold with wealth and if you want power the greatest amount like the greatest way to get power is to create generational wealth for your family
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean even like look at game of thrones i'm yes. a yes total sidebar but like that's the Lannisters you know the only reason they had so much power in uh, in that story is they were the the richest family in Westeros
2: yeah spoiler
0: for
1: anybody I I mean yeah if you guys don't know what happened in Game of Thrones (laughs) but
0: I I think it's funny when people are like you know so I was
1: this is a total sidebar I was real salty for a while though when the show ended and uh-huh. all of the assholes watching the show were just posting spoiler after spoiler. And I'm like, I, cause as you know, I stopped watching the show because I, mm-hmm. I wanted to give George a chance to finish the books. Yeah. And all of us book fans, we were so diligent about like, I remember when the red wedding happened. Mm hmm like in fucking facebook and twitter blew the fuck up and all his book fans were just like <laughs> you know we had just been waiting yeah you know no one said a fucking word and then within like five minutes of the end of the show literally everybody on facebook is like can you believe and i'm like you motherfuckers like yeah i think but then i realized i was like you know what scotty like no one cares yeah <laughs> no one cares about your feelings <laughs> Yeah,
0: I mean, I think uh, like I mean that's yes. Like us book fans,
1: we were this weird little nichey like subculture that then blew up into massive pop culture. Like people weren't like no one gave a fuck about us.
0: Yes, unfortunately, and I think also too, just people felt so betrayed by the ending. That was a lot of
1: it. Was I'm like, not
0: gonna, I'm not gonna give anything away, and this is a hill I will die on. But if you did not see that ending coming, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't, I don't know I what mean, to tell you.
1: I because I because of all the assholes on Facebook spoiling it, I was like, once like all came out, what happened? I was like, yeah, no, that's pretty much where that.
0: No, I was mean, <laughs> there, there are literal.
1: There was nothing that I was like, what?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I can't even say like, I can't even say hints. Like that foundation started being laid in the first season. Mm -hmm. If you didn't see it coming, I I really don't know what to tell you. And I I think maybe you should take a long, hard look at what kind of preconceived notions you hold about a lot of things in your life. I also Mm -hmm. do think, I'll move away from from spoiler land now. I also do think that there is... (laughs) A type of person. I don't want to. Say, I'm not going to say it's a personality disorder. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that there is a type of person. I think. Pe- I think there are people who have. I think there's a personality of people who who like to spoil things. Yeah. And I think. Well,
1: and that was. I think that was the stuff I was getting pissed off at on Facebook was the people who were kind of just doing it just to do it right but yeah well and like the people who are real upset about the end of that series there was definitely a a strain of them that were like they were just geared up for the happy ending version and again i'm trying to stay away from spoilers yeah and i'm like did you what show were you fucking watching yeah what show were you watching yeah like it's it's like i mean if you watched the first season of that show you know it wasn't gonna go like that wasn't what that wasn't what George R. R. Martin was doing with those books. It wasn't right. what they were doing with that show. Like
2: with anything, there was
1: not going to be some big triumphant. No, the person you want to win is going to win kind of moment. You know, no, like, no. The whole point of those books in that series was to be like, yeah, the people you think are the heroes are not. You know, sometimes being heroic is actually what gets you killed. So
0: yeah, so
1: yeah. You anyway, know,
0: think, think about that. <laughs>
1: I I do love how we went from somehow we ended up in Game of Thrones after all. (laughs) Yes.
0: but i was gonna say i also do like the people that i'm trying to think i'm trying to think of something something that's like not even a spoiler that you're like that's like literally in the plot description of the movie yeah. like you know or you know the story or something that people will be like oh well, uh, um you know you'll say something about peter pan and captain hook or something and they'll be like oh uh, no spoilers and you're like i don't know what like I, the, I the fucking a, story has been out for like decades I you don't student, know that captain hook is a character i don't know what to tell
1: you i had a student in one of. My- my classes years ago get mad at me because i referred to the shining mm-hmm. and i said something about you know being trapped in a haunted hotel and they were like oh spoilers and i'm like the spoiler. shining it's is a plot a, point it, that's the log line of the thing <laughs> is a family in a haunted hotel <laughs> Like, this
0: is how this is how you get people who go see a movie like Sweeney Todd, and then are suddenly like thirty minutes in, they're like, "Um, is this a musical?" And it's like, "This is why. This is why this <laughs> stuff happens to you because you don't, you don't, you don't do you like you just wander blindly into things. <laughs> like how, I, I like which that's a that's a real legit story. I was watching. Sweeney Todd when it came out here in Albuquerque with uh with my other best friend and a dude in the row in front of us again like 30 minutes into the movie leans over to his girlfriend and he was like um are they gonna sing the whole time and I was like they sang in the whole preview like what yeah. how did you miss this I,
1: I think I remember when that Hugh Jackman Les Mis movie came out someone was real <laughs> upset that that's a musical and I'm like that that's do you not look at shit before show. you go
0: to before you go to the movies? And I'm yeah. I i do not know. I mean, I think that there are people who are just like, let's go to the movies and let's see what's what, what's playing. Yeah. Um, I do not like to gamble with my money in that but way. But
1: also, like Les Mis is like one of the most famous musicals of all time. Like, what did you think it was?
0: I don't know, and I felt like yeah. the same thing happened at Into the Woods that people were like, "Are they, <laughs> they going to sing the whole time?" And I was like, if, "Look, yes, if the, the answer song is happens, yes, they will." Yeah, if a song happens within the first five minutes of the movie, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, if it will be like, singing the entire time. If it's time. moving into Act Three and suddenly turns into a musical, then yes, you can be annoyed. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> not when like I think literally every line of dialogue in Les Mis is song. Yeah, like that is what it is. It is a musical.
0: Right? Yeah, it yeah. it's. It's, yeah, I don't know what to tell you guys. Apparently, I don't know what to tell a lot of people. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I feel like we're, like, oddly irate.
0: (laughs) I think I... Well, this is a bit of, like, the... I feel like the only time I got real mad was when I was talking about fucking protecting white women's... Purity. Purity purity just because that's just the the sheer hypocrisy of that yeah. uh all of this other stuff is just fun stuff to get <laughs> up about, about yeah. right which i think is also part of the reason why you and i are friends because i <laughs> i can because like we allow each other to have these rants about stuff without being like whoa calm down
1: well not only do we allow each other as we egg each other on <laughs> we
0: 100% do but i do as somebody who has been told to has I mean literally I have been told to calm down uh, for as long mm-hmm. as I can remember uh, which we won't even get into the fucking uh, oh yeah that's a whole shitstorm of all that but I appreciate anybody who's like yeah fucking let it go yeah just let it rip yeah, yeah. more like <laughs> yeah well I
1: think I've said this to you before it's like I generally can be counted on like like I'm not the person you go to to like have the nice like reassuring like oh everything will be okay kind of like i'm generally counted on if you're upset about something i'll get even more upset about it
0: right yes <laughs> like, to the point I where sometimes, I, <laughs> yeah, to sometimes where I have to be like okay i don't think that that's what was going on yeah. and you're like whatever that person's a asshole
1: that's um, total dumpster fire Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh okay this has been i i mean maybe it won't be but it feels like it's been a lengthy episode i guess we should let I people we're,
1: we're, We're right at about two hours here. Okay.
0: Okay. I guess we should probably let folks know that we'll be taking a little break.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave that in. (laughs) Just the look on your face. Like you actually thought I exploded for a second. (laughs)
2: Look at the look on your face. <laughs> like you were so surprised by it.
1: <laughs> I mean, it caught me off guard. <laughs> oh my
2: god. Okay. Oh, okay, good. Get it together. Get it together.
1: <laughs> oh anyway, <my> <sighs> yes, we are taking a break uh, for the holidays. I think Amelia is taking a break right now. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay,
0: I'm trying to. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I had a real, like, uh, when I first started acting, I had a real problem with breaking on stage because stuff was just endlessly. Because when something tickles me, that's what happens. Like, I can't, I'm not somebody who can just sort of be like, that was amusing and I'll tuck that away for later. Like, I dissolve into giggles. And I know a lot of really funny people. So shit would happen on stage and (laughs) I would just, I would break so hard. I've gotten. Uh, I would like to believe I've gotten significantly better. Yeah. You're, um,
1: you're a lot better
0: <laughs> at it now, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, that's uh you guys just got a quick little taste of why uh, that was such a struggle for me in my early yeah. days. Whew, okay. <laughs> yes. We will be taking a break for the next We I mean, tech, no, it is. It's okay. What am I trying to say? So we're going to take a break because uh, this this episode will come out this, you know, Thursday. And then the next Thursday is Christmas. And then the Thursday after that is New Year's. And uh, Scotty and I are going to be fucking tearing it up. Just kidding. Yeah, we won't be. But probably not. But No, it's going to be real quiet.
1: But uh, we are taking a break. So but we are taking a break. So when uh, you don't get a podcast in your feed next week, don't panic, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you all will. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: all like sixty-seven of our listeners, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we love you all so much. Thanks for listening.
1: You. There, we will return at the week after New Year's.
0: Yeah, which I believe is at January seventh
1: yeah i think that's right
0: yeah we'll be back with a, a hot and fresh new episode for you guys
1: yeah so this has been the weirdest thing yeah and we will see you uh in 2021
0: yeah happy holidays everybody
2: bye bye
0: so listen to friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing